This podcast contains language which some people might find offensive. Your mum might be alright with it, your dad will definitely be fine with it, but granny might not like it. That said, your kids might find it educational and learn some new words to make them look cool at school. Also, there are many views and opinions that you might not share, and some fabricated situations that obviously didn't happen. Listener discretion is advised. Just a couple of blokes Pouring all the liner notes We're the rock geeks Yeah, we're the rock geeks Who played on that? Who played on the other? Who did the album for the album cover? We're the rock geeks Yeah, we're the rock geeks Hey up, my name is Phil and this is Julian Now then uh, we are collectively known as the Rock Geeks, taking a monthly deep dive into the albums that shaped our worlds, touched our hearts and expanded our minds, exploring who made them and how, where and when they were made. Last time out we took a look at Alice in Chains' seminal second album, Dirt, and thanks very much if you took time out of your day to listen to that, it's very much appreciated, and we hope you enjoyed what you heard. On this episode of the Rock Geeks podcast... We will be stepping into a soft, candlelit ambience to listen to some of the most heartachingly beautiful vocal tones ever committed to tape as we take a close look at the Cardigans' 2003 masterpiece, Long Gone Before Daylight. Oh, marvellous. I, so, th- I didn't think we'd have the Cardigans so early, did you, when we first started writing all these up as possibles? No, I, I, to be honest, I, I thought that we were going to be um, rock and rolling all the way to yeah. uh, episode 50, assuming we're going to do 50 episodes, that Absolutely. is. Um, you know, this album is worthy of inclusion at this early stage because it is just a work of genius. Um, and I think it's an album that, for those folks who are sort of only familiar with uh, the 90s uh, Love Fool era cardigans, will actually surprise and delight, I think. Yeah. Up until this point, the Cardigans were quite a, a twee band, you know, like especially in the early stuff. They're, an, they're one of those bands I saw on MTV, probably 95-ish, and there was a single called Carnival, and it's... Have you seen the video for it? I'm sure I have, but I, I don't remember off the top of my head what it It's what it them like. in... I think it's like in a... Um, they're in like a town hall or some kind of dance hall. Um, and it's a ballroom dancing competition and they're on stage performing this song and there's some people judging it at the side, there's some blokes with massive moustaches, uh, they go to the hairdressers at one point and it's all really stylized. you know, it reminds me of, you know, like 1960s films and just the way they're dressed and stuff, but it's, there's like this undercurrent to it. If you've heard that song and you know that song, it's like one of the happiest songs you'll ever yeah. hear, isn't it, kind of? But it always just the look in their eyes at times and you just think they could quite easily just turn around and kick you in the face if they wanted to. You always, you just knew there was something else apart from just this happy band, you know, like that, especially because I think I knew that they had a bit of a, a, a thing for covering Black Sabbath songs. So you already knew that there was, you know, there was probably some kind of metal head in the band or there was a few different influences and they weren't all just this kind of twee band. I think they said themselves or they like, they write short, concise pop songs, and that one is a definitely a short, concise pop song. So I think they got criticised for being a bit cheery, an, an overly <laughs> cheery band, which if you've actually listened to them, you know, I always I think there's like this this melancholy thread through even the happiest songs. 
But songs like Rise and Shine and Sick and Tired that are really early ones. And even those, although they're quite upbeat, maybe it's to do with the vocal delivery, there's still kind of this, there's something there which makes it still have an air of, you know, melancholy to it. Um, I, I think Nina Person does have that edge of mel- melancholy to her vocal delivery, even, like you say, on the cheery songs. And I think that's one of the things when we get around to talking about Long Gone Before Daylight in more detail, I think that's one of the things that makes the songs as beautiful and touching as as they are. You know, it's her vocal delivery that, that does that and that little edge of sadness that's mm. in there. I think some of it as well. She seemed quite, not reluctant, but maybe not as comfortable as some people are with the spotlight to start off with. So maybe that came across in a on-stage persona, yeah. vocal delivery. Um, I mean, you can tell when you watch them later on, you know, once they get into around this album time and probably the album before, that kind of a persona changes a little bit. But it's, they're definitely a little bit more um, quaint. I'm, that I'm, might be the word for Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that many folks realise how young they were in the early 90s. You know, like when, when uh, Emmerdale... Uh, was recorded, you know, I think they were all sort of 20, 21 years old, you know. Yeah. In fact, I, I read somewhere that they were uh, they were 27 in when they recorded Long Gone Before Daylight. Well, she says it in the first song, didn't she? Yeah. 27. Yeah. So maybe, so what would that be, 22, 27? Yeah, maybe like, yeah, eight, late teens even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, so, so if, if you are sort of catapulted to stardom at that young age you know i think it's going to take some adjusting to especially if you if you're from like a you know if if you've ever sort of seen interviews with nina person you know she she sort of gives the impression that she's from this very sort of safe middle class mm. um background you know um who knows which uh what you know being catapulted to superstardom in, yeah. into the big bad world you know might take some adjusting to, you know. Um, but there's, the, yeah. as a band, though, up until this point, I don't think you would have, you wouldn't be able to predict the the the, the course that they've taken. So like the Emmerdale stuff, which didn't Emmerdale didn't come out over here, I don't think, until late nineties. Even though a lot of the songs on the first album are on Emmerdale as well. Uh, so that life where she's on the cover looking like Buddy from Elf's Sister, um, that's very. Um, that's them at their twist, I think, yeah. but still yeah. quite sinister at times as well. The one after is brilliant. That first band on the moon is like, I think that's probably, apart from this one, what we're doing now, that's probably their finest work. And then they get to Gran Turismo, which is, it's shocking, is that album? Well, there's an interesting story actually where while they were recording uh, Long Gone Before Daylight, they kept an online diary, which they posted on their website, which is still yeah. there. Um, and... Uh, one night in the studio, they had a listening session where they listened to all their albums back to back. Right. And the only one that they didn't enjoy was Gran Turismo. <laughs> so, it's a funny album you know, because... Tells its own story, doesn't it? I read a review at the time saying this is one of those rare albums that gets worse every time you listen to it. Because, you know, some, <laughs> most albums get better, don't they? Yeah. You find yeah. new bits in it that you like yeah. and you're, you know, over time. Especially this one that we're doing today, you know, like that... You know, there's some bits on it that are immediate, then there's others which kind of reveal themselves to you over time. But, you know, that's just part of their back catalogue, isn't it? And maybe without yeah. Gran Turismo, you wouldn't get the album that 
you know, long gone before daylight. How did you um, come to this album? Did you buy it when it came out or, or did you discover it a little later on? No. I think you got it before I did. Because it's after that, a camp album. A yeah. camp, a camp album. I never really yeah. how you say it. A camp. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's after following on from that. So I think you liked that. Didn't yeah. you? you were a fan of that one. And this sort of followed that kind of musical... Uh, yeah. direction because I'd really lost interest after Gran Turismo and, and I thought well if that's the go- that, that direction they're going in then maybe I'm not so bothered anymore and they'd vanished for a while hadn't they yeah yeah well they did they, I think they all went away and did some sort of solo mm. recordings and whatever and they, they probably more than likely needed a break from each other probably um, <laughs> after you know after Love Fool and, and um, my favourite game probably uh, took them yeah. a bit further as well didn't it yeah but um yeah, I mean, I, I was into Sparkle Horse, and yep. then I read that Mark Linkus um, had produced this album with Nina Person called uh, A Camp, mm. um, which I bought because of, of the Mark Linkus connection. I, I, previously, I wasn't really into the cardigans at all. They sort of they were sort of there, but sort of passed me by, if you yep. know what I mean. And then, I, I can't remember how, I, I must have read a review in Mojo or Uncut or something like that, one of those monthly magazines, uh, that I was a fan of at the time and just read this review of, of, of the album and I thought, oh, well, you know, I like to camp. So, I'll, you know, this it says, it, I think the review had the, that, the word Americana yeah. in it, which at the time to me was like a moth to a flame, that word, anything <laughs> that had the word Americana, I was right there. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's how I got into it. And, and um, you know, where previously I'd completely ignored the cardigans this was entirely different to anything that they'd previously released. And, but it still sounded like the Cardigans, you know, it still had their yeah. signature sort of style. But I think that's, you know, the ability of a band to reinvent itself in this way, I think shows great depth and talent and originality. And, you know, so it, it did cause me to go back and revisit like yeah. earlier material. But this is my jumping off point for the Cardigans. Yeah. Um, I, I think we've mentioned this before where I think sometimes your starting point for a band is really important because you view everything through that lens Yeah. so yeah. for me this is like a few albums in and they've gone from having songs like Gordon's Garden Party <laughs> and, and Daddy's Car in their early career um, onto like communication and you know some of the stuff on here which is clearly a world away from it I think though this album could only have been recorded at this point in their careers and, t- and lives maybe as well. You know, you have to have done a few things to arrive at a point where you're comfy enough to make an album that yeah. sounds like that. Well, it feels like it's an album where they've got something to say, mm. something worth saying, like n- not just sort of twee, throwaway kind of pop-tastic lyrics, mm. um, but actually something with, with great emotional depth to it. And you can only reach that point through life experience. And, you know, Nina Person had obviously been through some experiences um, to get to this place where she could write these amazing lyrics. Yep. So, so uh, we've talked about Nina. Who else is on the album then? Because the, they are the funniest. If you re, if you watch them in interviews or if you see them on YouTube videos, like just talking about stuff, they are so dry. Yeah. yeah. So the, who are the other people in the band which um, all form this rather unique unit? Okay, well, first of all, can I just say, um, as with the Metallica episode where I had to get my mouth around some Danish place names, there are going to be some Swedish pronunciations in this podcast. 
um, that are probably going to be way off the mark. And I yeah. apologise in advance to anybody who may perchance hear this in Sweden. Um, it's a it's a very um, intricate language. Um, Thankfully, I think the band is safe ground. Their yeah, names yeah, are yeah, all right, but it's yeah, going to be some of yeah. the others where you kind of hope that we're not butchering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've got um, Nina Person uh, on vocals, and I've got down here in harmonica, but the liner notes say that uh, it was somebody else who played harmonica, which I'll get onto in a second. Right, uh, okay. But she certainly plays harmonica live yeah. on these uh, on these songs. Um, Peter Svensson on guitar and backing vocals. Uh, Magnus Svenningsson on bass guitar and vocals. Uh, Lars Olaf Johansson keyboards and piano, and Bengt Lagerberg on drums and percussion. I think as well, Lars Olof gets abbreviated to Lasse, is it? L-A-S-S-E. Because that's referred to a few times. And I think that must be some, you know, abbreviated version of that name. So, yeah, advance apologies for all incorrect pronunciations. And there's a fair few guest appearances on this. It's like a who's who of Swedish pop and rock. Ebert Lundberg from uh, the soundtrack to Our Lives performed backing vocals on Live and Learn. I don't know that band at all, do you? I bought the album in the early 2000s when right. um, The Hives first yeah. came to uh, prominence. Um, it's all right. <laughs> High praise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking of The Hives, Howlin' Pelly Arnquist performed backing vocals on A Good Horse along with Nick Royale of The Helicopters. I don't know that band either, the helicopters. I'm not massively familiar with them either. I've heard of them, but um, right. not hugely um, uh, familiar with their, with their work. Um, pa, uh, pa Sunding, um, who produced the album also, um, performed a guitar solo on A Good Horse and uh, the harmonica on For What It's Worth. Um, Peter Masal- Maslkovsky. Very good. P- yeah, Peter Maslkovsky. I think I got that right. Um he was the um, this guy was the Cardigans live sound engineer between 1993 and 1998. How did he get on the record? Well, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Um, you know, when when you, when you sort of get into it, it's all quite sort of incestuous. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a musician and producer at Tambourine Studios, which is where the album was uh, recorded. Um, he worked there between 99 and 2001. Um, he also played guitar solo on a good horse. Um, now another one. I have listened to A Good Horse many times and I can confirm that there is only one guitar solo. Um, how both people are credited with its performance, I'm not sure. So they're the um, additional uh, artists who appeared on the album. Um, further additional musicians, uh, we've got a string section, Helle Sorensen on cello, John von Dahle on violin, Meti Thaikia. Well, go on, Phil, you on, can do it. Just plough on. on viola, <laughs> Just yeah. do I it. Don't, I don't even know if I'm saying it right Just or not. go on. Um, Marianne Sorensen on violin. Yeah. Um, and all the string parts were arranged by Patrick Bartosz, who was a member of a band called Eggstone, who we will talk about at some point Yep. further on. Um, and there are some horns, surprisingly, on the album, which... I really struggle to find if like in the song where they are, but I think I have found them. Right, okay. Um, but they were performed by uh, Jens Lindgard on uh, trombone and Petter Lindgard on trumpet. Very good.
Um, the producers for the album uh, were Parsunding, um, who was also in the band Eggstone, who we will talk about in a second. Um, he produced um, A Camp, and I think he produced their second album, Colonia. All right. Um, after Long Gone Before Daylight. Um, and also the Cardigans, they're the two sort of internationally known um, acts that, that he's produced. He has produced many other people, um, but mainly sort of from the Swedish music yeah. scene. The project was originally produced by Tori Johansson, but he stepped down by mutual consent because he felt that he couldn't deliver the country-influenced sound that the band were looking for. I think uh, they wanted to control it quite a lot. I think he's probably more of your traditional, oh, I've got this idea for this song, you know, or he listens to songs and, you know, does that produce a thing where they try and say, this bit's stronger, this bit's less strong, why don't we try this? And I think they just wanted their own. The, yeah. it, was, it was more like, you know, they produced So where it says there that Pear Sunding and the Cardigans produced it, I think it's mostly the Cardigans. Yeah. And I reckon Peter Svensson probably produced it because if you... And he's like the driving force, yeah. self-proclaimed driving force, isn't he? But yeah. Well, I think I think Tori Tori Johansson in the early days was was a bit of a sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not Svengali, um guru, maybe right. I don't know. But um, they they would. Um, I think he was responsible for shaping a lot of the sound and the songs and helping with arrangements. And I right. think I think you know in the early days I think they probably. Um, learn a lot from him yeah. in terms of how to produce a record and how to construct a, a you know a concise pop song. Well, he he came um, back for the next album, you know, Super Extra Gravity, yeah, doing after yeah. he was the producer on that. Yeah. So, you know, they didn't fall out completely or anything like no, that. No, but like, like he, said, he does come back on board. Yeah, it was it was by mutual consent. <clears throat> um, that that's which that's is true. a very, <clears throat> I, I think that's the most Swedish thing. I, I like. <laughs> Like this, this, well, no, 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 because the Swedes have got, have got this reputation, I think, in, like for being quite rational and calm and not losing the rag. Right. And uh, and I might be completely wrong. I probably am, but it just seems like a very Swedish thing. Like you know, to to uh, a lot of bands have split up and fallen out and had lawsuits for far less. Yeah. Than that. So is what I'll say. Um, I just think with mutual consent, somebody brings it up first. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. So it's very difficult well, that you would yeah. both go, do you know what? You know, and both be thinking exact same thing, exact same moment and come and discuss it at the same time. So yeah. mutual consent's a funny one. But, but, but uh, they, did, they did have, they did mention in the um, studio diary that um, they started off the sessions with a series of meetings, some of which were fun and some of which were not so fun. So right. maybe that's those early meetings were where these conversations were had. Um, uh, moving on to uh, two engineers, the album was engineered by Per Sunding and the Cardigans. Um, Herman Söderström, which sounds to me a lot like Söderström. I'm sorry, I've got to, I've got to say, uh, my, my juvenile I know. mind wouldn't allow me not to. Uh, engineered I'm not sure what part of the album he engineered it's not specified but I'm assuming um, that he engineered um, some of it I don't know I don't know Um, Nathan Larson um, engineered the vocals as we will get into later on uh, to save time and money at the end of the recording the uh, two studios were used Uh, tambourine studios was used to finish the music and Medley Studios in Copenhagen, uh, in Denmark, 
um, was used to record all the vocals with Nina Person. So the mix engineer was Lars Michael Ibert, who mixed the album at Megaphone, which is a studio in a Swedish town called Ian Sherping. It's it's I put this into Google uh, Translate, and the way that it's pronounced is entirely different to how it's written. Um, so that K in there. Uh, I've written it phonetically as Ian Sherping. All right. Good. I don't know. Well, I, don't, I don't know. You've just gone the extra mile there. I I'm have. sure they'll appreciate it. I have. So when we were talking about Pinkerton and the number of studios that um, Weezer used to record mm. that album, um, we, th- we, th- we thought at the time that that was excessive. <laughs> what, was it three or four? I, th- I think there were five altogether. Right, okay. Um, in in that, um, maybe maybe a few more sort of towards the end of the process when they were going yeah. around LA trying to get studio time to finish the album. But um, the Cardigans have taken the cake. Go on then. With How this, um, it's like they've done a, a like a world tour of recording studios before the world tour to promote the album, mm-hmm. just to get into the swing of of, of touring. Um, so they've recorded at Tambourine Studios in Malmo in Sweden. Here's another pronunciation that I am going to butcher. I do apologise. Um, San Clavier Studios on Gotland Island, um, which is in the middle of the Baltic Sea. Um, that's in Sweden. Right. Um, El Cotillo Studios in Malaga, Spain. Parkgate Studios in Catsfield, which is in East Sussex in the UK. Medley Studio in Copenhagen in Denmark. Manitone Studios in Stockholm in Sweden. Um, the best name for a studio that I think I've ever seen, the Aerosol Grey Machine in... Oh, God, here we go. Um, v- Valhair. Very good. Just crack on. In Sweden. Um, Those forgive you, the very calm people. They yeah, won't get annoyed. Yeah. Or maybe you'll tip them over the edge. Maybe they, maybe I will, maybe you'll. Um, that, but by the way, that's the album where Roxette recorded a lot of their hits. The studio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Mr. Tatalgo's Nice Studio. That's even better than the Aerosol yeah. Grey Machine. Yeah. Um, information on which is impossible to find anywhere online. Anywhere. That's in <laughs> Stockholm in Sweden as well. How do you get to that name? Yeah, Mr. Tatalgo's Nice Studio. I don't know. It sounds like a tattoo studio to me. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, so they're the studios that... Um, the cardigans used, I think there were eight altogether. Do you know what I don't get? It's not like they were recording it on tour or anything like that, yeah. or trying to fit it in and around. No. It's just, like you say, chuck a pin at a map and, yeah, let's go there. I think a lot of the motivation was to escape the Swedish winter. Maybe. Which, yeah. appar- which apparently is super, super cold, Brutal. especially in, in Stockholm. So they thought they'd go to England. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's basically. Notoriously <laughs> tropical. <laughs> Frying pan into the fire, I feel. Um, the album was mastered by George Marino at Sterling Sound. Who seems He's to have, a busy man, isn't he? He's a busy man. He's never going to go out of business, that guy. Seems to have mastered pretty much everything uh, that was ever released. Um, and the album was released on Stockholm Records, which is a subsidiary of Universal. The release dates uh, are, are quite... There's four separate release dates for this album. Japan got the album on the 19th of March 2003, Europe on the 24th of March 2003, Canada on the 22nd of April 2003, and then America didn't get the album until the 25th of May 2004. I know, I'm not really sure why it's referenced on there's a, a live performance, or it's like acoustic of them doing For What It's Worth. 
And then they mentioned that in there because I thought it must be like, I don't know. It just seemed odd because they were quite popular in America. Yeah. I don't think it's because yeah. they completely bombed there. But um, yeah, it mentions it in there. You know, this album's been out for a while. I think the interviewer says, you know, it's been out for a while elsewhere and it's just coming out over here. Um, it does seem a bit odd because yeah. it's not like it's a couple of months later. It's a full year. Maybe it was um, to coincide with touring commitments. So Possibly, maybe, yeah. you know, they toured Europe through... Uh, the middle and back half of 2003 and then America wasn't scheduled until maybe yeah 2004 so maybe it's maybe it's to do with that so before we go into the recording of the album I think as we've done on previous ones look at the context it was released in what else was going on in the world so 2003 yep we'll focus on that because that's kind of the initial release isn't it it is yeah yeah um now usually i give you a little quiz at this point but i'm not going to today i'm just going to run through some brief events for the year okay. some of them you might edit out because one of them's potentially libelous um <laughs> especially when i go to town on it okay. uh, <laughs> chelsea fc were purchased by russian billionaire roman abravelit bram god just plow on uh, roman abravelit <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever had to say it out loud, actually. Um, Abramovich, for a sum of £150 million, which probably wouldn't buy you one player nowadays. I know, that's, that, I mean, I know this sounds absolutely ridiculous to say, but that sounds cheap. Yeah. It sounds like a steal. It is for today's standards, yeah. Brookside finished. If you live in England, you're probably aware of Brookside if you're of a certain age. Trailblazing soap opera. First... <laughs> First televised lesbian kiss. Was it? How yeah. do you know that? You ever Anna, seen it? Anna, Anna Frail. You ever seen it? I taped <laughs> it. I'm sure you did. So, yeah, the last one was um, 2003, launched in 1982. Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway, all, of, all people who watch Netflix murder documentaries like uh, yeah. I do, were very aware of him. Pleaded guilty eight to forty-eight counts of murder. That's a lot. Forty-eight. Yeah. How did, how did he have man. time? How did he have time to do his shopping? Biz, I don't know. He, he must. He must have been like full time. I know. The admin and the logistics involved in that. <laughs> Fuck do you know what I mean? I mean, it's to be applauded. <laughs> it is, I know. No, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I Just do. doing that and covering all those tracks 48 times. I, I think I remember watching something about the, the Green River Killer. I think it might have been that very documentary. And I don't know. I mean, America's a really big place, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, if you are sort of in the middle of um, nowhere... Yeah, you're going to say, what else is there to do? Well, <laughs> yeah. Aside from murdering your neighbours, what else is there to do? Yeah. No, I, th I, th I think, um, you know, it, it would be easier, I think it's easier to cover your tracks. Right, OK. In, in, in a larger country, if you're prepared to cover the distances required. The libelous one, Pete Townsend, was arrested. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he was researching his, his autobiography, um, mm -hmm. which... Did it ever come out? His autobiography. Yeah, mm. it's very good. Yeah, I've read it, yeah. Is this in it? Um, it is, yeah. Well, he references uh, a lot about his childhood trauma and what have you. Um, and I can I can understand why, you know, if, if he sort of psychologically blanked that part of his life out, and understandably so, I can understand him wanting to try to reconnect in the uh, interests of authenticity when writing his autobiography. But I think it's a really risky strategy, what he did. <laughs> it's just really... I just find it really odd. I think it's yeah. really odd as well. Anyway, 
Yeah, so he, he well, he didn't get away with it because he was put on the sex offender register yeah. for five years, wasn't he? But he wasn't kind of... Yeah, but he obviously satisfied the police in his explanation that his, that his reasoning was mm. um, not uh, criminal, yeah. shall we say. They were probably doing a big tour. It was coming up and he's like, <laughs> VIP tickets if you want. Anyway, <laughs> Glastonbury Festival, David Gray, Primal Scream, Marchiba, Flaming Lips, Marchiba, <laughs> Radiohead, Super Fairy Animals, Lamb, Feeder, Manic Street Preachers, and Doves. Can I can I butt in with, Gosh, uh, with one? Um, July the first, two thousand and three, Tesla Inc., uh, the American electric car company, is founded by Martin Eberhard and Mark Tarpening. Is it in San Carlos, California? The Tesla, Tesla, Tesla. Tesla, 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 yeah. All right. 2003. All right. So there you go. Um, like Chelsea FC were bought out by um, a multi-millionaire. Probably Tesla was as well because it's now in the hands of... Um, Mr. Musk. Mr. Musk. I think he'd done PayPal by then, hadn't he? Um, yeah. Yeah, mm, I think so. I don't know how I feel about Elon Musk. I I do, but I can't say here. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, August the 1st, 2003, social networking service MySpace is launched. All right. Remember MySpace? I'm sure we've mentioned MySpace before. Um, I think it was registered a lot earlier. Oh, registering up in, yeah. um, But uh, launched in 2003, apparently. um, Responsible for the Arctic Monkeys. I hold them accountable. But the the thing with MySpace was, like like, like the the internet as a whole now... um, it gave everybody a platform, and thus it became white noise. Mm. Oh yeah, and the, and and the really good stuff was impossible to find because it was surrounded by not so good stuff. Mm. Um, Mick Jagger got knighted at the back end of that year. Yeah, Ozzy Osbourne had that all-terrain vehicle accident on the grounds oh, of his English estate. Um, yeah, Ozzy Osbourne was in a really bad way there, wasn't he? Right, the Ivan Novello Award. So what? So that's that for song- like songwriters. Yeah, so that's like the best song yeah. of the year. Right. So okay. the best song musically and lyrically that year apparently was. No, go on. About every single song recorded that year. That year, Will Young leave right now? Oh fucking hell! Exactly. The bar is very low there. No disrespect to anybody involved in the creating of that song, but the bar is very low. It's weird because that's normally quite, you know, it's not a pop music award, is it? They normally try and be a little bit different or it kind of recognises maybe, we, maybe we're missing something, Phil, and it really is, you know, no, well, the best song the, that was the, released that The year. thing is, is that, you know, it's a very formulaic pop song. There's nothing groundbreaking or innovative about that song it is just like you know popcorn for your ears isn't it really but that's I, I'm, well I don't know if, I'm sure if we looked at some of the people who have been recipients of the Ivan Novello Awards then we would be able to raise a few eyebrows as well, well. I'm sure Corner Shop have won it I think they have yeah you know which Brimful of Asher which I think is a remix the, the, well yeah but even so you know the production on that is you know, far more innovative and interesting and creative yeah. than uh, Will Young. Um, anyway. Deaths. 2003, go on. Maurice Gibb. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Bob Hope. 
All right, yeah. Well, you know, he had a good innings. He did. Thora Heard. Again, another good innings. Yeah. That rhyme, rhyming slang for something, Thora I think it is, yeah. It's also the punchline to a joke, isn't it? I don't know. Something sure. about um, unfreezing cows or something. Like right, okay. Greg, Greg Ridley. No. Humble Pie bassist. All oh, right. You might yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob Monkhouse. Oh, comic genius, Bob Monkhouse. <laughs> Honestly, right, I used to watch, um, what was that quiz show he did on a lunchtime? Uh, okay. Oh, okay. oh, what was it called? It's going to come to me in a sec. Um, I can't it, it Bob's Full House, was it? Yeah. Is that what well, it was? He, he did have one called Bob's Full House. He yeah. used to do a little comedy skit at the start of the show, at the head of the show, and it was the best bit of the programme. Right, so should we go on to the studios then? Because they recorded in, like we've said, eight, at least eight different studios. And although we do like talking about studios, this would end up being like a 12-parter, wouldn't it? Yeah. Based on how much detail we kind of go into sometimes. So Tambourine seems like the logical one to go into the most detail on because of its importance to the band and also just Swedish music. It seems to be at the centre of a lot of things that happen musically in Sweden. Yeah, it's kind of the um, Olympic studios of, of, of Sweden, I would say, in that every Swedish band of note at some point has probably been through Tambourine Studios. Is it still open? Uh, it is, yeah. It's is still that? going, yeah. I think um, it has a very sort of specific kind of sound that I think a lot of uh, is attractive to a lot of bands. Um, and we'll get into that as, as we talk about it. Um Tambourine Studios has also hosted uh, Synthetienne, Idlewild, one of my favourite bands of the of the era, um, as well as uh, Tom Jones and Sir George Martin has uh, has worked there as well. Has he? He has, yeah, in the mid uh, in the mid nineties, I believe. In the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was um, recording Paul. <laughs> so, um, Tambourine Studios is situated in the Swedish city of Malmo. Uh, which is the third largest city in Sweden after Stockholm and Gothenburg. And it's located in the southwestern region of the country, just across the water from uh, the Danish capital Copenhagen, where Fleming Rasmussen's Sweet Silence recording studio is based. It's really close, isn't it? It is super right. close, yeah. And, and um, as I was mentioned in a moment, um, there, there was a bridge um, built between Malmö and uh, Copenhagen. Is which, that the bridge from the TV show? The it bridge? is, it is, yeah. It is. That's where. That's the bridge on which that uh, that show was filmed. And Tor, what's he? What's his last Tore, name? Tor Johansson. Yeah, he looks like he should be a detective. If you look <laughs> at him, he looks like like you know like the ravaged detective. You know the one who's probably just split up from his wife and yeah. is struggling a bit as they all have in these detective shows. Yeah, he looks like he should be in it actually. He does. Yeah. <laughs> now you mention it. Um, Malmö's football team are the only Nordic team to reach the European Cup final in 1979 and they were beaten by Trevor Francis's solitary goal for Knott's Forest. Uh, also, uh, Malmö is, is known for um, being the location for IKEA, or IKEA headquarters is, is based there. Mm. Malmö ho- has hosted the Euro- Eurovision Song Contest twice uh, in 1992 and 2013 and will again in 2024. Um, which is when this episode will air. This is really sad if I'm correct. Go on. But did they host it in 1992, did you say? Yeah. Because of 
bobby socks let it swing <laughs> i have absolutely no idea i think this might be a few years earlier actually oh no it's 1985 thank god for that even the fact that i know that is weird bobby socks bobby socks it's a great song so when tambourine studios first opened its doors um, malmo was in an economic slump and by 1995 had sweden's highest unemployment rate so 1995 is roughly when life would be been recorded yeah, uh, around, that before, time, yeah. around that time. Around that term, yeah. Um, the building of the Öresund Bridge in 2000 brought economic in- integration with Copenhagen, uh, which helped to improve things, apparently. But um, as of uh, 2022, I think, according to Wikipedia, uh, where I got this information, the unemployment rate is still quite high uh, in terms of right. a national average. Which kind of, I don't know, like, I, I, like when I think of Sweden, I don't think of economic hardship. I think, because like... Everybody always goes on about how they've got it right. You know, like yeah, they, they tax yeah. the hell out of people, but it's actually that brings about all this great quality of living. But yeah, this is contradicting yeah. that quite a lot. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's quite surprising to, to, to read. Um, okay, so talking about the um, origins of, uh, of Tambourine Studios, the national radio station, um, which I think is called S- S- Swedish Radio, I think. Imaginatively. I think imaginatively, yeah. Sveriges Radio, in, uh, this is from 2016. Um, it states that Tambourine Studios is based in Malmö. Hard to find, invisible from the outside. Swedish bands such as The Ark, The Cardigans and Bob Hund have recorded here. International artists and groups have also been produced here, such as Tom Jones. Tambourine is a distinctly retro studio... Bought by, amongst others, Moritz Carlson and Per Sunding from the group Eggstone, a dance band from Shevik. I think that's how you say that. It's not how it's written, but I think that's how you pronounce it. It is a studio that actually consists of many nooks and crannies filled with older analogue equipment, odd carpentry and acoustic solutions such as a self-constructed bass drum. Which sounds like exactly the type of place that the cardigans would record, doesn't it? Especially the earlier stuff, I can imagine them recording in that place. Yeah, it it feels very DIY. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Um, the article goes on to say, the studio should be like a living room that makes artists perform at their best, says Moritz Carlson. It is a clear aesthetic that repeats itself both in both the floor, walls and ceiling as a mixture of family room and rehearsal room. Eggstone always felt that they were entering a dead sterile room when they were met by a technician chasing noise and worried about his recording equipment, so they built the studio they wanted, Tambourine. Many bands have found their way here, but the most magical moment was when Tom Jones visited Tambourine. One take was needed, plus one more for visibility. He barely needed a microphone. I can imagine that's true, because, I mean, undoubtedly, Tom Jones is a 60s icon, but subtlety isn't really his... Forte, is it? You know, he's, he's, he's kind of like a very bombastic, yeah, one volume singer. I don't want to pick faults in that, but he, he did need a microphone if you're going to record <laughs> <Yeah>. him. <laughs> you know, yeah. I know Which, what he's trying to say, yeah. but you, you, you put the CD on and listen to the backing track while yeah. his voice echoes around the yeah. world. And in the sleeve notes, it just says he was really loud in the studio. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. we decided not to use a microphone. Yeah. Enjoy. The article goes on to say, limitations are the best method to shake creativity to life, says Parsonding. We managed to cope with the dip and the competition from the home studio during the 90s. 
The record walls and the atmosphere, the look and the ambience, the history attract musicians to Tambourine again after a turbulent period. So this sort of sounds a bit like the turbulent period is maybe the economic slump that yeah. we referenced earlier on. The bit about the limitations as well reminds me of the studio for the Holy Bible, where yeah. you use what you've got. Yeah. And when you use what you've got within limited methods, yeah. you know, it makes you think a bit more, doesn't it? Yeah. Go but, to a big recording studio with everything, you know, you're like everything's there for you, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But I think um, as we will get into in, in, a, in a little while, um, the equipment that Tambourine had to work with was probably several steps above what <laughs> right, um, okay. Sound Space had in, uh, in Cardiff. Um, from a Tapop magazine interview with Par Sunding, uh, this is taken. In 1991, my, this is Par Sunding talking here. In 1991, my friend Tori Johansson was working in a state-funded studio and my band Eggstone did an EP with him. We loved the Beatles, the jam, 60s music and people here weren't interested in the same things we were. Malmö was a working-class city and most people were just interested in the blues. Also, the way things were recorded here was like a competition for best 80s snare sounds. We didn't like it. We were more into a cutlery box drum sound, which absolutely is how I would describe a lot of early Cardigan's uh, yeah. drum sounds. Um, Tora saw an ad in the paper. A studio in Shevik uh, had gone bankrupt and was selling everything. They had all old gear, 24-channel Amec console and a 16-track 2-inch MCI. Our parents consigned some loans and we started looking for industrial sites on the edge of Malmö. We found this space, moved out of our flats and moved into here for 18 months. So that sounds like a very um, early, late teens, early 20s thing to do, doesn't it? Does, it? Yeah. You know, um, very few responsibilities and commitments. Yeah. Get your folks to sign off a loan. And, yeah. Um, I can't imagine us two being able to do that at this stage in our lives. No, no, I can't either. And, and As attractive as it does sound, yeah. though, to be honest. I mean, it must have been bloody hard work as well, yeah. you know, getting it off the ground. Um, and I imagine that when they started out, they did a lot of stuff for free. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so just to briefly talk about Eggstone, um, this is the band that producer um, Par Sunding was, uh, I think, bass player and vocalist in. They formed in 1986 and are considered the godfathers of Swedish pop. Par Sunding played bass and sang. Uh, similar sound, very very similar sound to the Cardigans' early albums, you know that cutlery box drum sound and you know mm. kind of twee, kind of sixties pop, you know jaunty kind of um, kind of sound. You know um, they had a, a, like one big hit single in Japan called Water, which is a really odd song. Um, it's sung in English and it's basically a list of the uses and properties of water. And it's just bizarre. It's really odd. I'm just bringing up the... Uh, <laughs> it is bizarre. I've not really looked at it before. Um, I can only imagine it was uh, a hit in Japan because they didn't understand yeah. what he was singing about. It starts off strong. Water is good for your health. And then it descends into water can be found in tennis balls, waterfalls, orchids. It can be boiling or freezing or sparkling or just be floating around. <laughs> so, Yeah. Good, I like it. Yeah. Thanks for the insight. <laughs> yeah. 
So TC Electronic, who manufacture effects pedals and such like for guitars and, and whatnot, um, they've got a YouTube channel and in 2023 um, did an interview with Par Sunding at Tambourine Studios. And there's a few things that can be gleaned from this uh, video interview. Uh, firstly, that the MCI 16-track 2-inch tape machine, uh, which he mentioned they bought uh, in the mid-80s or late-80s, uh, was still in use. And he's still in use to this very day, uh, I, I think, uh, but in conjunction with uh, digital recording software. Right. Um, I think they started using uh, Pro Tools around the time of Gran Turismo. I think that was the first sort of... It sounds like a Pro Tools-y kind of yeah, album. Yeah, lots of loops and yeah. and, and such, yeah. So um, I think they, they use, like I say, they use the two-inch tape in conjunction with that. Because um, I think bands still like to have that analogue, mm. that warm analogue sound, especially on drums and, uh, and whatnot, get that tape compression going. So what is the tape machine model used? Um, well, I think, um, based on my research, I think it's an MC, MCI JH16 model, um, pro, the prototypes of which date to 1971. So it's quite a vintage uh, piece of kit that I imagine takes um, a bit of uh, maintaining. Um, MCI is a company that was founded by a guy called Grover Jeep Harnard. Good name. Yeah, it is. Only an American could have a nickname like Jeep, <laughs> yeah. I think. Um, Harnard is, is credited uh, with building the world's first 24-track 2-inch tape machine. Why would he have done that as opposed to 16-track 2-inch tape machine? What's the motivation to make 24 tracks instead? Well, I think um, at the time, studios were always... Um, trying to do that one-upmanship, you right. know, where, you know, you're, you've only got 16 tracks, we've got 24, you know. Um, when 8-track came out uh, and the Beach Boys were using 8-track, the Beatles immediately had to get an 8-track tape machine, you know, right. to make Sgt Peppers on, um, or whatever album it was. Um, so, yeah, so I think there was that sort of um, one-upmanship really, um, which is probably why it came about. So what's the difference between the 16-track and the 24-track? Um, well, I, I had to go into forum land. Oh, um, God. Which, you know, is less than reliable, I think, uh, in terms of the quality of the information that's, that's uh, found there. Um, but on gearspace.com, the general consensus uh, is that 16-track 2-inch tape is punchier with a fuller-sounding low-end. Um, it has an improved dynamic range, less crosstalk, and a better signal-to-noise ratio compared to 24-track 2-inch tape. I have no idea, Phil, what signal-to-noise ratio on crosstalk actually is. So for the benefit of those people listening who are like me and don't know, uh, what is it? <laughs> okay, so um, integral to this um, is the, the, the tape speed at which the machine runs. Uh, which on, on these machines is, is usually either 15 inches per second or 30 inches per second. Um, now, I get the impression that 2-inch 24-track at 15 IPS is a big no-no from a signal-to-noise ratio point of view. 24-tracks um, of tape hiss can accumulatively become quite a big issue quite quickly. Uh, but some folks apparently like to run their 16-track tape machines at 15 IPS for maximum analogue fatness. That's a great phrase. Yes. Maximum, yeah. maximum analogue fatness. 
Uh, uh, a tape machine company like MCI should have used that in their marketing bump. Um, and got Alan Partridge to, yeah. uh, to be in the adverts. <laughs> yeah. Maximum analogue fatness. <laughs> so 30 inches per second is better from a signal-to-noise ratio point of view because it raises the tape piece up a full octave, which puts it out of the range of human hearing. Mm. So that's why... That's preferable. So signal-to-noise ratio is the amount of signal being recorded uh, to the amount of tape hiss, Yeah. To, to put it kind of simply. So, you know, if you record like a, a, a sound source at quite a low level, you will have quite a lot of tape hiss relative to that sound. If you record something at quite a high input level, you know, you crank the gain up on the desk and... Yep and get the meter going up into the red, you, you know, you might also incur some distortion in that signal, but you will have more signal relative to the tape hiss, relative yep. to the noise. So that's signal to noise. And crosstalk is where if you record, say you're recording on track eight, some of the signal from track eight might bleed across onto track nine. Right. And and so so you'll be able to... You'll hear the full signal on track eight, but if you isolate a track nine, you might hear like a very faint kind of echo or, yeah. or transfer of that of that sound. Um, and that's, I think, I'm, I think I'm right in saying that that's more likely to happen on a twenty-four track two-inch tape because the the there are more tracks. Yeah, that makes sense. Closer together in that two inches, whereas on the tape head, there's more space between. The, the, the tracks on the 16-track 2-inch tape. Yep. Clear as mud? I understand. Yeah. yeah. So um, so that's uh, crosstalk and signal-to-noise ratio covered in a very ham-fisted kind of way. I have a feeling that at this point in time, we're going to say the word Neve for um, the first time this episode. Well, I might, I might surprise you. With, uh, I bet you don't. No, I'm not going to surprise you, <laughs> no. So, in the background of the video of the TC Electronic interview that Per Sunding did that I've just mentioned, in the same video, he sat in front of a mixing console, which, um, when he mentioned the AMEC 24-channel console in the, the uh, Tape Op magazine interview, I, I naturally assumed that I would be looking for an AMEC console. And what I th- thought was possibly an AMEC uh, M2000 mixing console uh, turned out to be something far more superior than that. Um, and he's actually sat in front of uh, a vintage Neve 8068 console, which is what, at the time of the interview, was installed at Tambourine Studios. However, in relation to this Neve 8068 that Par Sunding is sat in front of in this uh, TC Electronic interview. At some point, very shortly after giving that interview, the mixing console was sold. The the TC Electronic interview was published on YouTube on July 31st of 2023. However, Par Sunding gave an interview elsewhere on the studio.se website uh, that was published on July 28th, so three days before the TC Electronic video in which Parsunding states uh, the old Neve mixer became a little too expensive to keep, so it had to be sold to Ireland. Instead, the Studio A's control room now has a Harrison desk. So I found the listing 
for this Neve 8068 console. And it was sold through a website uh, called Pro Audio Design and the asking price was a mere £225,872.39. pence. Mm. Seems a bargain. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Abramovich could probably afford 15 of them. And is these Harrison consoles, are they of equivalent quality, is it? I've not heard of them before. I don't think we've mentioned them before, have we? No, I've, I've not heard of Harrison console. I can Im- I can only imagine that um, if they replaced <laughs> a Neve console with a Harrison console, the Har- Harrison console must be of very high quality. Mm. And you're getting that amount of cash to... Yeah, I mean, it's unclear where in Ireland the, the, the desk went, but there's a studio in Ireland called Attica Audio who have... Uh, a Harrison console listed on their equipment list on their website. Perhaps a part exchange was done. Perhaps their Harrison console went to Tambourine it, mm. with, with, along with some cash and then the Neve went to Attica Audio. Who knows? I don't yeah. know. I'm speculating. So the Neve 8068 is no longer installed at Tambourine Studios. Do you think it was there when they recorded this album, though, this Neve 8068? I'm not sure. It's kind of hard to find um, contemporaneous images of the cardigans in the studio um, alongside the mixing console. What I can tell you is that the original AMEC console that Parsonding mentioned in the Tapop magazine interview obviously didn't last very long at Tambourine because in 1995, uh, Tambourine Studios were using a different Neve console. Can I just go back to when you said contemporaneous? Because yeah. I just had to look that word up. Right. But you used it in context. Well done. Thank you very much. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> I, I know some words. I know you do. <laughs> I didn't know that one. <laughs> so in 1995, uh, Tambourine Studios were using a different Neve console, uh, which was a 24-channel console custom built for the BBC. So how do I know this? Well... Trawling YouTube, again, I found a TV interview from 1995 in which the mixing console is in the background and it's different to the one that Par Sunding is sat in front of in the TC Electronic interview uh, video. So it's a different new console. Um, how did I identify the desk? Well, it took a bit of doing, um, but eventually there's a close-up of the faders and at the top of the fader strip, there's a Neve logo above the fader, which is like a, which was the giveaway, which told me that it wasn't an AMEC console at all. It was a, uh, a, a Neve console. Um, now, the console in question were, were built for recording uh, radio broadcasts, and they're, they're really quite rare. They're probably rarer than the 8068, I would imagine, because only 24 desks uh, are on record as being supplied to the BBC from the mid-70s to the early 80s. Yeah, it's they must quite, have been shelling out some cash to the BBC at this point, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, because there's a website that, that lists all the, the consoles that they bought and who made them for them, and it's all people like Neve. Yeah. But yeah, they probably did shell out an awful lot of money. So that's where the licence um, fee's going. Yeah, yeah, at that time, <laughs> yeah. So these um, BBC uh, radio broadcast Neve consoles are quite rare and quite uh, expensive, although not as expensive as the 8068. Uh, but at the time of writing, uh, there is one for sale at soniccircus.com uh, and it's going for $87,500, which is a decent chunk of cash. It is. So a little bit bit of information about this uh, this 
BBC radio broadcast Neve console. Um, Sonic Circus say about it, um, custom built for the BBC, 24 channels of 33122A mic pre-EQ modules with Belclair transformers, 4 times AM6 slash forward slash 17 compressors. Um, the console is up and running and fully working. It sounds absolutely amazing with a warm, rich and deep sound stage. Well, it should because it's the real deal with transformers everywhere and a classic Neve EQ circuit. Just a word on the, um, the, the compressors. Um, it says on the Sonic Circus website about the compressors, these are the special BBC design with the analogue look-ahead circuit that provides a, not, a zero attack time. These are very cool and have a unique sound. Once you've tried these, they're hard to live without. Um, What's a zero attack time? It means that it's instantaneous. As soon as the signal hits the compressor, it, it's like right. okay. in, it's in action. Right. Um, Tori Johansson listed this compressor as being like a must-have in the studio. Right, okay. Like, th- I think the, the, the compressor from this mixing desk is his favourite all-time compressor. So this this console um, is more than likely the console that the Cardigans recorded uh, the Life album on and possibly Emmerdale and First Band on the Moon. Very good. Because it's, you know, it was installed in 1995. Yeah, timelines are good. Yeah, so the timelines all match up. Do you reckon this radio broadcast um, console was still there in 2002? I don't know. Like I say, it's hard to find... um, Photos of this particular um, particular desk uh, in situ in two thousand and two. In fact, it's hard to find photos of any mixing desk in Tambourine Studios from two thousand and two. But from the research that I've done, um, the Neve eight hundred six eight console was in- installed as far back as uh, I found an image from two thousand and twelve on uh, Tambourine Studios Facebook page in April two thousand and nine. There was a YouTube video featuring Danish rock band Magton's Corridora, in which this the Neve 8068 can be seen in the background of the video. And then, as far back as February 2007, there's another YouTube video featuring Parsonding and Jonas Struck of the band Swan Lee, uh, recording a song entitled uh, What You Get Is What You See from Swan Lee's eponymous 2004 album which Sunding engineered and produced at Tambourine Studios. Uh, this album was released on March the 1st, 2004, which means that it could have been recorded as early as late 2003. So we can put the Neve 8068 in Tambourine Studios definitely in 2004, right. possibly 2003. So this is as close as I can get to 2002. Right. Uh, when the cardigans were recording uh, Long Gone Before Daylight. So there's loads of photos of of the cardigans in Tambourine Studios recording Long Gone Before Daylight. Um, And these can be found on the Cardigans Studio Diary microsite on their official Cardigans website. But annoyingly, none of these photos feature the mixing console. I am going to go ahead. Go on, Phil. And say, yes, that Long Gone Before Daylight was recorded on the Neve 8068. Um, And the reason that I'm saying this is because I think Love Fool paid for it. 
<laughs> I, I, think, Maybe, yeah. I think those hits from the <laughs> mid to late 90s for the Cardigans made a lot of money for Tambourine Studios. I think Loveful was in Romeo and Juliet, wasn't it? It was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and and I think that song alone probably enabled Tambourine Studios to upgrade from the BBC console to the 8068. Yeah, maybe. So I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb. I don't know for sure, but I'm going to say that the Neve 8068 is the console that they recorded on. Right, so if we move on to them actually recording now and kind of how that came about and the circumstances and how they did it, what would be really useful here is if they actually did like a studio diary. Well, e- every band that we covered, if they did a studio diary, it would be brilliant if only the Cardigans would have done one. Well, and if they'd have addressed it to us. Yeah, and it's still online now. Yeah. Dear Phil and Julian, Yeah, this is how we did it. Um, well, you know, we can't have it all. Um, they, they did address it to a wider audience, unfortunately. Right, okay. Um, Disappointing. Yeah, very disappointing. Um, but there is a studio diary. All oh, right. Um, which is is quite illuminating in in, in places. So you've got um, photographs of gear and stuff, and then recording and. Bits there's of lots that. of photographs, but not many photographs that are pertinent to our venture. Contemporaneous. Uh, yes, contemporaneous images. Right. Um, but the the. They published this studio diary on their website um, and it was written throughout 2002 during the recording and maybe late 2001 right, okay. during sort of pre-production meetings and such uh, such like. Um, and it contains a few insights into the recording process that might help us to understand the recording schedule. Sometimes it's unclear who's writing this diary, but where I can, I will state who it is that's, that's written it. It's quite long and... A lot of it doesn't really pertain to our, you know, what we're talking yeah, about here. Just pick out bits um, that we. Yeah, so here's a few selected uh, pertinent excerpts from the touring diary. Part one is uh, from Malma Tambourine Studios. Okay, so part one. Um, there is a lot of material. Actually, we have never had this much material when starting to record. Peter arrived with 15 or 16 melodies, which is twice as much as we are normally used to. So Peter, as a recap, is guitarist. Benson, yeah. Guitar player, uh, the main guitarist, main songwriter. He's kind of like, he's the driving force, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, he writes them on an acoustic guitar. Yeah. Which, well, what do you reckon the benefits of writing everything on an acoustic guitar or starting it there? Well, you know it's a good song. Yeah. If it's, if you can do it without whistles and bells, I just, think so, just yeah. a guitar and the melody's strong and the chord sequence is, is engaging and interesting and you know, and flows nicely, you know it's a good song straight off the bat. You're listening to the actual song rather than you know, if you're playing it through if you're playing a a telecaster for whatever yeah. reason, which obviously they did, you're gonna be concerned with getting the sounds that you're happy with in that moment yeah. and different guitars direct you to play in different ways don't they so yeah yeah i think it's quite common in it for people and they're portable aren't they you don't have to plug them in you can sit watching telly with them you can kind of sit on a tour bus you can sit wherever so yeah i think it's quite common in it to write on an acoustic guitar yeah and and i have to say also even 15 or 16 melodies doesn't strike me as being a lot um maybe they're the ones that he thought actually had some Legs, yeah, rather, because you know you probably write loads and. But but again, previously, if that's twice as much as they usually have previous mm. albums, if he's gone in the studio with eight, only seven or eight, um, ideas, mm. that means that they're writing 
a quarter of the album in the studio. I don't like the uh, Jeez, I, I think writing an album it? in a studio is... Don't you find it must be just such a waste of time? Money, oh, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, recording began in Malmö's tambourine studios with two producers. Uh, we are actually starting a competition to find out who they are. The first one to give us the names of the producers will win a memorable collector item. At the moment, it is a pair of shoes belonging to Peter. Uh, we started off with some group meetings. These were sometimes fun, other times not so fun. This might be the end of the Tor Johansson that they're referencing yeah. with the not so fun, might it? Yeah, so so that they began the sessions with two producers. Obviously, that's Tor Johansson and Par Sunding. Perhaps, as we said earlier, the not so fun comment is with reference to Tor Johansson's departure from the project. They... I think they they wanted to, to produce it themselves, really, didn't they? And just wanted an engineer I, I who think could just so. do what they who do what they said, and yeah. he wants to be a bit more hands on. I, I think by this point, the Cardigans are a band that don't really need producing as such. Mm. Um, I think Peter Svensson is, uh, you know, knew what he wanted from these sessions, what he wanted the resulting album to sound like before he even stepped into the studio, yeah. and you know maybe Tori Johansson was a barrier to him achieving that in some way. So the, the diary goes on to say, um, the sound of the album is going to be quite different from Gran Turismo. We decided to use as little computers as possible and we actually recorded the songs live with all the band at once in the studio. This is a first for us, but it's great. It gives us a really good feeling of how the songs sound at once. It means, however, that we all have to work a lot. So that phrase, use as little computers as possible, indicates that they were recording to the uh, MCI 16-track uh, mm. 2-inch tape machine. It might, re- it might refer to the lack of digital sounds on it as well. Yeah. Because yeah. Gran Turismo's got a few more, you know, squelchy noises and yeah. drum beats that which are from drum machines and stuff. So it might be referencing that as well. Yeah. There's not many non-organic sounds on this album, is there? No, I think I think it's um, probably a reaction against uh, Gran Turismo. The, the you know the way they're recording this. I have to just put in here at this point as well on Facebook, Tambourine Studios. They posted a picture of them stripping a twenty-four track two-inch MCI machine um, for parts. So it could well be that they were recording to twenty-four track machine and not a 16 track but I don't mm. know. Well, it sounds dodgy when you say well, it's stripping it for parts don't they? I, 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 would, I would venture forth the opinion that um, <laughs> the 16 track machine is probably preferred in terms of its sonic capabilities mm. you know reproduction of the sound um, and probably they were stripping the 24 track to provide the 16 track with spare parts I think that's probably what was going on there. Yeah, that'll be it, definitely. That'll be it, yeah. Which takes us on to part two uh, of the uh, studio diary, 
which is headed special report from Malaga, Spain. This ties in with your weather yes. theory. Let's get somewhere where it's not quite so cold. Yep, yep. Marbella, which makes me think yeah. of only fools and horses for yeah. some reason. Or is it yeah. Torremolinos? It's one of those places, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, from El Cotillo Studios. El Cotillo Studios. I don't know if that's... I think that's probably the best one you've done today. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's shite. <laughs> it's just terrible. It's all relative. Um, it's it didn't say yeah. we're good. <laughs> so this, this entry was written by somebody called Nicholas, who uh, managed the band's website until right. 1997. So here we are in Marbella, and though the weather is not too bad, the cardigans are sitting inside most of the time. Um, it has been an intense two weeks of work with two producers. One of them is a very famous pop star. Did we ever get to the bottom of who that is? What? One of them is a very famous pop star. I think they're being ironic. I think they're referring to Parsunding and his role in Eggstone. All oh, right, I took it very literally. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's a very famous pop star. I think they're just being right. Okay, it's a bit of an in joke. I think. Um, I thought it meant that you know they'd had like a, a songwriting session with somebody who was very famous. That's tend to yeah. happen. It takes me a while sometimes yeah. for things to, you know. Yeah, me too. Make sense. I mean, it's probably it's probably the the way I'm presenting it. The album is not quite finished, <laughs> and there is still six studios to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and there is still a lot of work left to do. So far, the songs I heard sound really great. I have already picked out two favourites from the bunch. Too bad the recording tape does not fit in my Walkman. Um, so two things can be gleaned from this little entry. Um, they're still working with two producers, which means Tori Johansson um, is probably still on the project at this point. Yep. Um, and he's still got a Walkman, which 2002. Yeah, I know. How quaint. Yeah. Very retro even then. Uh, and then the recording tape not fitting in his Walkman. Mm. Um, so they're still recording live to two-inch tape by the sound of it. Nicholas goes on to say, It is a really big house with a fireplace, a pool, many rooms and obviously a recording studio in the basement. The house belongs to Trevor, who is a drummer who worked with Tina Turner, <laughs> among others. So that, that refers to Trevor Marais, who's right. a session drummer for Tina Turner, David Essex, Howard Jones and Björk. Good pronunciation of Björk, though, by the way. Thank you. That is how you're supposed to say it, I think. Yeah. I say Björk. Um, his session work with Björk led to uh, her recording Homogenic at El Cotillo. Oh, right. So there you go. That's the, the connection there. Nicholas goes on to say, I thought rock stars were just cruising around not doing much. I had to change my mind after seeing them work. The band is in the studio for 15 hours a day, sometimes more, and there is no such thing as a weekend. So it shows that they've got quite a serious work ethic there. 15 hours a day in the studio is quite intense, doing take after take. Yeah, but it's not 15 hours a day in a warehouse, is it? No, it's not. It, but it does have its own challenges, I think. Especially if you're in one room for the whole time. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, do, I know what you mean, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a first world issue. Isn't it, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's not in a Victorian workhouse, are they? No, no. Um, but they're putting in 15 hour days, which is a, a serious shift. At this point, um, Magnus Spenningson, uh, Cardigan's bass player, chips in with an entry, which goes on from what we've just been saying. We started up by recording endless takes on some new songs, all of us in the same recording room. Bengt had tuned his tom toms so that he could play along with the chords. 
sounds pretty cool and very Grateful Dead. Lassie's stuck behind his Wurlitzer keyboard most of the time, but he also got to play on the grand piano in the library. So there's a little insight into what uh, uh, Lars Olof is um, using, his Wurlitzer keyboard, which sounds very Blackpool Tower. It does to me. Yeah. So yeah, you know, um, they're obviously um, putting in some hours and recording lots of takes, trying to decide which one is the best. When really the second take is always generally, the best. isn't it? <laughs> it is. And everything else is if just anything, just punch it in or just replace it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So for part three of the studio diary, they've they've now moved to um, Parkgate Studio, which is in the town of Battle, in uh, East Sussex. Um, Magnus Svenningsen again. Parkgate Studios is situated in the middle of nowhere, right next to a town called Battle. This is where the infamous Battle of Hastings took place some time ago. Battle is surrounded by lush forests and sheep, a perfect place for us to continue the recordings. The studio itself is great, a big recording room where we all fit for recording sessions. <laughs> the next bit's brilliant. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's obviously got as as I had. This earlier, is the sense of humour that I was on about earlier on, where they're really kind of dry and. Yeah, he obviously has some preconceptions, uh, yeah. as as I obviously did earlier on. Uh, like every other house in Britain, the Parkgate Estate is moist and damp. Uh, though we knew about the English weather situation, we actually like to stay away from the Swedish winter. It's warm and cosy indoors, and each night we had a good look at the only two British contributions to world cuisine, lager and crisps. You know, like we were worried about generalising the Swedish earlier. Yeah, yeah. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, as I have to say, as a, as, a, as a Brit, I take exception to this statement because I'm pretty sure... That we also invented the pot noodle, pork scratchings and alka-pops. I think you're probably right. We have a rich heritage. <laughs> we have a of... rich culinary heritage. <laughs> we do, yeah. Which is unmatched by any other European yeah. nation, yeah. including France and Italy. Yeah. As in, uh, Svensson goes on to say, As in Marbella, we started off by making takes on new songs. Bengt had his own booth where no one could disturb him. Lassie set up an impressive arsenal of keyboards and organs in one corner of the main room. <laughs> Sorry. Are you thinking of <laughs> what I'm thinking? Yeah, he set up his organ in the, <laughs> in the corner of the room. Insider. Um, Peter and Magnus had their amps in separate booths to avoid unnecessary sound leakage in Bengt and Nina's mics. The plan is to keep the room ambience as much as possible. This way we can keep the drums if Magnus fucks up the bass line or opposite. Nina's occupied by writing small pieces of lyrics while humming along to takes. I think the recording process, I'm sorry, the writing process is that Peter writes them on these on the acoustic guitar and sings. He comes up with a lot of the melodies, I think, like with yeah. nonsensical lyrics. Yeah, right. Because okay. there's, um, there's a documentary for the next album. Have you ever seen the Super Extra Gravity documentary? Yeah, yeah. And she yeah. says in there, he comes up with all these things and the, with the ideas and sometimes the words he uses off the cuff are really good and they fit really well, some some words. So she has to sculpt the kind of <laughs> lyrics around those. So maybe that's what she's yeah doing. Like we said before, it's it's his it's his band really, isn't it? Yeah. One of the things that I found interesting in that statement, it sounds like mic separation was the name of the game for these sessions um, so that overdubs could be easily made. Now, if we think about how 
Joe Barresi recorded Pinkerton. Yeah, like that was a band in a room and the only way to make it work was to create more distortion to glue yeah. it all together, as Barresi said. It sounds like they're doing the exact opposite here. They're right. trying to keep everything so isolated that they can replace any part of it with minimal um, sonic change. There'll be lots of little foam walls up and stuff, won't there? Yeah, okay. yeah. So, you know, this suggests to me that maybe re- recording everything in one take was becoming problematic. Maybe, like, in the to striving towards the perfect take, the slightest mistake, well, not, not mistake, but maybe, you know, a note isn't quite fretted right or, you know, the, the dynamic of a certain passage isn't what they're looking for. Um, you know, maybe all these. Yeah. Maybe recording it live has become a little bit problematic, so they're trying to record it live, but then give themselves um, a, an escape hatch. Well, it is as well because if you if you're recording live, you would hope that the song is fully formed, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Because this way, you're hoping that you get a take that you can say, "All right, well, we'll work on that one and put music. We'll put lyrics over that." Because I think in this band, lyrics usually come last. Yeah. And a recording. Um. Yeah, I'm not sure about the recording live thing sometimes if you don't have a, a group of songs which are all fully formed. Yeah. Or maybe they just want to... Sometimes they want to record live because you might get something happening that you didn't expect. I imagine that's yeah. it, isn't it? And also, as we mentioned, you know, it's a, re, it's a reaction against the recording technique that they used on Gran Turismo. You know, the, the, they, it sounds like they absolutely don't want to return to that. Um, and want to create something, like say, a bit more organic. Svenningsen goes on to say uh, in this uh, in the final part of this entry, the most fun thing is, after all, to record. Even though some sessions last until four in the morning, the excitement was there throughout the nights. This was the first time we've tried to record takes all together, and we've gained a lot of confidence in playing the songs over and over. Naturally, this dogma method takes plenty of time and tape, but we feel it's worth it. Dogma being you only, it's like, a, it's used in filmmaking, isn't it? You only have on stage or on screen things which are integral to what you actually want to, the message you want to get across. Right, yeah. So it's like this minimalist way of doing things so that everything you do is actually worth it um, yeah. and is needed. Yeah, yeah. So again, uh, speaks to the work ethic that yeah. the band are, are putting in. So part four of the studio uh, diary uh, was written in San Clavier studio in Gotland, Sweden, um, which, as mentioned, is in the middle of the Baltic Sea. There's not nothing really much to report um, from the recording sessions in this particular entry. There's a couple of things that I, I, uh, that I should probably mention here. Um, You're the Storm, the, the version of You're the Storm that was recorded at this particular studio appeared as a B-side to the single You're the Storm. It's a really weird version, though, isn't it? Yeah, it which, is. Which seems to not make any sense whatsoever when you listen to it, yeah. knowing the proper version or the yeah. one ended on the album. Yeah, there, there are key changes on every chorus, which yeah. really, like, sort of disconcerting in a way. And mm. it sort of throws your ears, you know, like you, you feel like you're in a, in a listening groove and then all of a sudden you, like... 
you know. I haven't listened to it for a while. Does it return to like the original key for a verse and then it goes up a key for a yeah. chorus and then back down again yeah. and then up a key? All right. I thought yeah. you meant that it kind of just kept moving. The um, the sleeve notes to the greatest hits or the best of the uh, cardigans has got a little bit of, you know, a write-up of each song. And I think that You're the Storm is actually one where they went back and re-recorded it a few times. I know they changed the key because it says they record, we recorded three versions of that song and they were all rejected. So right. we went back to the demo and recorded a copy of that. A good example of overthinking something that's already great. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to part five of the Studio Diary. Um, the band returned to Tambourine Studios in Malmö um, in Sweden. Magnus Svenningsen again appears to have the Studio Diary writing uh, duties. So he states in this part of the uh, the diary, um, the dogma style of recording live has given the songs a certain warmth, which I think lacks in modern music. Still, the levels of accuracy in our performances are not satisfying. This means that we have got to start all over on at least three songs. A lot of spent time, sort of wasted. We started to look through some of the slow songs and found that they are fine the way they are, but some minor adjustments in the Pro Tools system. We let them stay live and fluffy. In order to save up some time, Nina is recording her vocal takes in Copenhagen, right across the water from Malmö. It sounds like... From that statement also, there are two sessions going on at the same time. So the band are re-recording at least three songs at Tambourine and Nina Person is recording vocals uh, on the finished, the, the tracks that are considered to be finished at this point at Medley Studios with Nathan Larson. Um, Mag- Magnus Svenningsen goes on to say, one of the secret producers had to work on other projects and now it's just us and the famous Swedish artist left. We have started to re-record some four tracks by the usual drums first method, banked playing along to a tempo track, and then the secret producer is set to edit the best part of it. I think as well, there's in those uh, greatest hits notes, when they recorded in England, the piano was out of tune. Oh, really? Right. So they had to go back and re-record some stuff. Right. So that might be some of this re-recording some of the four yeah. tracks. That, that must have been embarrassing for Parkgate Studios. Yeah. In that documentary for Super Extra Gravity, though, the um, last say the keyboard player says that he's like showing all the gear that they're using. He says, and over here we have a, what we call a Western piano because it's only ever mildly in tune. <laughs> and uh, that might be a reflection of, yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, one of the... Um, the opening sentence of that last statement, one of the secret producers had to work on other projects, so it's now, now it's just us and the famous Swedish artist left. Was Tori Johansson still involved at this late stage in the game? I don't think so. I, I it's can't, weird, it's a bit vague, isn't it? It is a bit vague. I, 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 I don't think so, but it's quite odd that... Um, maybe he's referring to Herman Söderström. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sorry. Can I apologise um, for any errant um, pronunciations? So what we can also glean from this statement is that at least three tracks have, have definitely become four tracks that they're re-recording uh, in these last uh, sessions. But also it sounds like the live recording method might have been abandoned at this point because they're now recording by the usual drums first method. So it says Banked plays along to a tempo track and then the secret producer, who is Parsunding, as we now know, is set to edit the best part of it. So maybe, you know, they're, they're laying down a the, the, the perfect drum take to yeah. play over the top of. I don't know. 
Um, and maybe that's uh, a time-saving device as well, because trying to capture the perfect live performance can take a long time, um, as we know. Um, Svenningson goes on to say, this process is slow as hell, which contradicts <laughs> what I've just said, um, but we make great progress in the accuracy. We feel that since there's no prize uh, to win for being quick, we can't put out a record which is substandard out of laziness. Uh, the average recording speed has decreased due to the change of method, but then again, maybe we weren't very efficient making all these sessions. The new versions are all tighter, and I think they'll turn out heavier than the rest of the tracks, which I hope the record will benefit from. Which, again, contradicts everything that I've just said. Yeah. So the final part um, of the Studio Diary um, is again from Tambourine Studios. Again, it's Magnus Svenningsen. We came here in April and it's now September. Oh, God. So <laughs> they've been... How how have they been spending that amount of time in the studio? It's bizarre, um, isn't it? It is. It is, especially like you know, you know, like fifteen hour days. If they're doing all that, yeah. Is it striving for perfection or is it insecurity that's driving them to keep doing all these takes of songs? Well, if you haven't written all the songs before you go in, if they're just ideas that need forming. Yeah. Maybe you're not recording for all that time. You're, a lot of it's spent just arranging. Yeah, yeah. It does seem a long time, though. It does, especially if you're working on the same, like, like you know, four or five songs. Just to maintain the enthusiasm yeah. for them. Yeah, I bet the enthusiasm that he referenced at Parkgate is um, <laughs> waning slightly by this it's stage. Per- it's since perished. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That a mix has been made for the first single by a bunch of people and we are about to wrap it all up. The tricky thing will be to exclude uh, some of the songs from the album. There are some 15 songs recorded here and elsewhere. The album will probably only contain 11 songs. So those original 15 or 16 melodies that that Peter Svensson turned up with, they've obviously used them all. Yep. Um, Unless he's introduced a few new ones along the way. There are 11 songs on the on the album, officially. Um, there are two album bonus tracks, which are Hold Me, the mini version, and uh, If There's a Chance. At least they were the two bonus tracks that were on the British release of this album. They're the ones that are on the existing Spotify version. I don't know if that's yeah. anything to go by, but once you get down to... Yeah, hold me mini version, and then if there is a chance. Yeah, so that's that's accounts for. Well, does it account for thirteen of the songs? Because the hold me is a mini version of hold me, so maybe there's like just twelve songs in actual right. fact um, here. A song uh, titled "The Road" appeared as a B side uh, for what it's worth, which I think was from this session. Das Model uh, 2000 appeared as a B-side on For What It's Worth. Um, so I'm going to assume that this is a cover version of the famous Kraftwerk song. Hold Me, the full version, not the mini version, the full version appeared as a B-side to You're The Storm and had an entirely different feel to the rest of the album. If you, if you listen to that recording, it doesn't sound sonically like, right. like the rest of the album. So I can see why that was missed off and used as a B-side. So that's 13 songs uh, accounted for. If There Is A Chance, which was B, which was 
a bonus track on the British release of Long Gone Before Daylight was also a B-side on the Live and Learn single. So excluding Das Model, which I think is more than likely a cover, I haven't heard it, so but I'm, you know I think I'm pretty safe in all the assumptions that I've made in these podcasts. I think that one's the safest. If the fallen mini versions of Hold Me are counted as separate songs, that makes up the 15 tracks. Uh, if not there is possibly a 15th unreleased track out there somewhere. But there's a song called For The Boys, which appeared as a B-side on I Need Some Fine Wine and You You Need To Be Nicer. That's a great song. It is an amazing song. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so brilliant. good. It is great. Um, so, and I think they, they performed For The Boys on the Long Gone Before Daylight tour. Right. Before Super Extra Gravity was recorded. So I think that that's the 15th track. Oh, right, okay. Um, from the sessions, so I think we've accounted for all the all the songs that were recorded. If I were paying for this album, yeah, you know, like if you're the record company, I would. And you were, you know, they probably dropped in, didn't they, on the early yeah. sessions? I'd be like, you need to get back into a, re- a rehearsal studio. Yeah, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Why are you Why are you wasting although, all this time? Although, you know, if it's tambourine studio, yeah, I'm gonna say, well, well, you know, <laughs> pass, pass something. You know, I mean, it might be historically the way that they worked anyway. Maybe, yeah. You know, pass something might be sort of, you know, let's go back to let's go back to tambourine and finish yeah. the album there. It'll yeah. only take us six months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll invite you twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one for rehearsal, one for recording. <laughs> <laughs> So Svenningson goes on to say in this uh, final part of the... Uh, oh, it's actually not the final part. It's part one of the final part. Um, we have had photo shoots for the single and album cover. Our friends Kaiser and Mackie from a bake art direction company came over to discuss the design and overall vibe for the sleeves. Our friend Franz Halfquist, um, who got shot in the crotch... I don't know what that's a reference to. Um, got shot in the crotch? Yeah. And then never mentioned... That, it, feel, that feels like it needs a bit more... Yeah, I mean, it might be to do with, you know, that game Bandy, the indoor Bandy that they played at the studio. I don't know if we've mentioned this already. I'm assuming he didn't get, you know... It's not... Yeah, it can't yeah, be too I, serious. I don't think there was a firearm involved. Um <laughs> But nonetheless, okay. he got shot in the crotch. Right. So uh, Franz, who got shot in the in the crotch, is taking the pictures, and we all feel very comfortable with the setup. Uh, since we feel that this record is really basic and nice, we wanted the aesthetics to show this transition from the Gran Turismo style. We all look very casual and cool, having our pictures taken in the grand Swedish summer. It goes on to say. Michael Ibbett out of Gothenburg will mix the entire record due to his fine work on the single. So I think the sing- the first single was for what it's worth, I think. Yep. Which uh, obviously got finished and mixed and released ahead of uh, the album. So these are sort of excerpts from um, various points of the tour diary. So, you know, um, if, if it jumps around a bit, that's why I've, I've edited the bits pertinent to the recording process. Um so he goes on to say, uh, today is the very last day of recording. Lassie and Herman, the intern, I've no idea who Herman the intern is, um, an intern, obviously, mm. have already left town in a minivan bound for Stockholm. They have loaded the van full of Michael Ibbett's analogue EQ desks, some guitars and computers. 
The very last overdubs are made now. Nina is doing vocals on the last tracks and some parts here and there on a few other songs. The remaining edits will be made up in Stockholm while Michael mixes the record. I sense a different vibe among us, the eagerness to nail this down once and for all. Maybe we are nervous about the very inevitable. Once mixed, no major corrections can be made. Still, I think that everyone feel that it has been worth it. We have been together working for 10 straight months now. The low point was back in April and May when we decided to start all over on plenty of tracks. I guess the sheer disappointment of breaking the schedule and failing to reach the ambition made us cranky for a full month. Now I know it has been worth it. So do you think if they'd have only recorded it in four weeks and thought, well, you know, we've got four weeks to record it, you'd be less apprehensive about it not being perfect? Whereas they've had so long to think about it, overthinking things maybe at times, that you're going to be more anxious. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you're at a point where you can afford almost limitless studio time, you will inevitably end up indulging all your uh, insecurities about the work that you've done in an effort to make it as perfect as possible. Um, And it kind of sounds a little bit like that's what's happening here or has happened here. You know, when you get to a point where you're deciding, you know, a good sort of halfway through the recording process that you're going to re-record the majority of the album. I don't know, like if, like you say, if you had like four weeks and the record company said the money's going to run out in four weeks, you would just go in and do it and however it came out is what you would release. Yeah, you'd be less, you know? you'd just be more accepting, wouldn't you, of the fact that it's probably not perfect, but if you've got unlimit- if you've got limitless time... You'd be striving for things just to be exactly as you want them, which could drive you mad in the end, couldn't it? Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, you know, they, they said that they'd been working on it for 10 straight months. Um, you know, that would suggest that the recording process started in late 2001. You know, that's that's like almost the, the entirety of 2002 spent recording these 15 oh, songs. <laughs> When you see it written down, it's like, oh, 10 months. But then if you actually think about how long 10 months is yeah. to work in a studio on 12 songs, maybe, 13, 14 songs. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite yeah. a long time, isn't it? Spending Sing then goes on to say, we all made it up to Megaphone Studios where the owner, Ulf, Good name. which I think is a great name. It's brilliant. Uh, shows us around. The place is located in a basement, but it has shopping areas just outside the front doors. Michael Ibbert... Is it Ibert or Ilbert? Ilbert. Have yeah. I been saying it wrong all this time? I'm. I'm gonna. Oh, I'm gonna go with Ilbert. I think. Anyway, Michael started to mix the songs at a speed of one song a day. By late evening, we all make our ways down to the studio to listen to the mixes. There's a fine balance between giving Michael total liberty and making our thoughts heard. The killing of darlings always occurs and it's sometimes hard to pinpoint the perfect levels for all the instruments. We've all been in that situation, haven't we? The killing of darlings? Yeah. Does he mean there's bits in the songs that they have to kind of say, you might love it, but in the end we don't really need it? Yeah, your your favourite part of this mix is... Glockenspiel solo. It's not required. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Peter and the secret producer have to work on the last edits in a nearby studio owned by super producer Max Martin. We were also offered to hang up there, which we gladly accepted. I think that might be hang out there. 
At least we got to watch a bit of TV and check our mail. None of these services were provided downstairs at Megaphone Studios. We got nice visits from top Swedish rock singers Nicky Andersson from the Helicopters, Screaming Pelle Almquist from the Hives and Ebert from Soundtrack of Our Lives. We thought we'd need some good old ice hockey backing vocals on two tracks and whom else would do it better than these fine men? Peter, Pear and Michael went to New York City to do the final mastering with Mr George Marino at Sterling Sound Again? Studios. Again? Has he popped up on... He's everywhere. Three or four of them? Yeah. I'm yes. sure it's a preset still. He just goes... I- there we go. Yeah, it's, it's the George Marino preset. <laughs> yep, and he just does it and then yeah. takes four weeks and then just says, yep, yeah, yeah, it's done. Yeah, probably does it on his phone. Yeah. Uh, we finally managed to deliver the final master 12 hours before the deadline from hell. Uh, the Stockholm record staff were very happy to get the master tape and we were equally happy to avoid legal problems as a result of a missed deadline. This is the end of the recording diaries. Hope you've enjoyed the trip. Oh, well, we did. Thank you very much, We Pete. did enjoy the trip. Um, I mean, 12 hours, when you think about 10 months, the last 12 hours is, is cutting it fine somewhat, isn't it, mm. uh, out of all those uh, out available hours? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're calling it the deadline from hell, which sort of makes me feel like they still felt like it wasn't quite there at the end. Like, we've both recorded in studios, and we're on a very tight schedule usually, aren't you? Just yeah. to have that much time and be able to put that much thought into it, it yeah. seems, I don't know, I, I can't quite get my head around it. It's like that Metallica documentary, isn't it, when they recorded the Black Album, and they've got nine months, ten months. You yeah. think, what, do, how, how often, how, what are you doing all day? I mean, you know, <laughs> only, don't you think? There's only so much you can do in a day, isn't there? I think a lot of times... Um, there's a lot of overthinking going on. Probably. You know, I think sometimes the, the, the best results are just when you go in and crank it out in, mm. like, one or two takes and just, like, capture the, the energy yeah. of, of the take rather than, like, you know, the perfect take, capture the energy of it. You know, I think that's where a lot of the most vital and interesting and exciting music comes from, you know, that sort of process. Which isn't to say that Long Gone Before Daylight lacks any of the things that I've just mentioned, because quite patently, mm. you know, it doesn't. It's just a very long time, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's a long time spending the studio, yeah. Or eight studios. Um, speaking of studios, um, during the studio diaries um, that mainly Magnus wrote, uh, there's no mention of Aerosol Grey Machine or Mr. Tatago's Nice Studio in there, so we don't know what part they played in the recording process. Um, perhaps the part where Magnus uh, refers to um, Peter and, and Pear sort of doing final tweaks in different studios, perhaps it was, you know, maybe those two mm. studios where they managed to get some time to, to put the final touches to a couple of things. Uh, but that is it. That is the recording process. Simple. So, should we talk about the gear then? Yes. I reckon there's plenty of gear on this. And for us to list everything that was used would be a virtual impossibility. Yes, I think you're probably right. I mean, Peter Svensson, who we will start with, um, is quite well known for his guitar collection. Um, He has numerous vintage uh, 50s and 60s Fenders, Gibsons, all kinds of stuff. Um, It seems like the kind of bloke who would have... um, a good guitar collection. 
Yes. He's yeah. not like a one a one guitar man. No, he's not. He's obviously, you know, when we get into the guitars that that we think he used on the album, he's, he's, he has got great guitar taste, yeah, it must be said. Um, There's no so, Kramers, is there, anywhere? No, I don't think he's got any Kramers. I don't think he's got any uh, Washburns. Um, so, there's not a lot of, uh, written online about Svensson and his, the equipment that he uses. I cannot find a single interview that is given to a guitar magazine where, you know, they would obviously talk about guitars and mm. equipment and, you know, his preferences. So what I've had to rely upon is contemporaneous photographs and video footage uh, of live performances from around that sort of era uh, to make educated guesses as to what gear Spencer might have used on Long Gone Before Daylight. There are tons and tons of photographs of the Cardigans in the studio in 2002 recording Long Gone Before Daylight and that's all tied in with the studio diary that we've just been reading from uh, in the previous section. Um, but frustratingly, very, very, very few of them, if any, show any guitars or <laughs> amps yeah. or the mixing desk or anything. So... You know, we're, we're kind of clutching at straws a little bit, but we will make our best educated guesses from the information that we have uh, to hand. So guitars-wise, having looked at some festival footage from uh, the 10th of August 2003, uh, the Taubertel Festival in Germany, Svensson is seen playing at least two Fender Telecasters, two different ones. Both old ones, you well, reckon? Easy to tell. I, I think so. Right. I think so, yeah. Um, it's um, the, the first Telecaster that we'll talk about um, is a butterscotch uh, Fender Tele, which he's performing at this festival on the songs You're the Storm and A Good Horse, which might be a good indicator that it was a Telecaster that he played in the studio. Because, you know... Sounds if, like one. Yeah, I mean, if you've, if you've got that sound and it sounds good, then, mm. you know, you, you probably would continue that in a live setting so the 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 main features of this butterscotch fender telecaster that he's playing on uh, you're the storm and a good horse um it has a black pit guard uh, that has five screws uh, looks to be single ply it's got black dot fret markers a maple neck with lots of wear um, the finish looks quite faded and worn it's got a circular string tree vintage style nickel tuning pegs skunk stripe up the back of the neck um, it's got a barrel pickup switch, rounded nickel control knobs, through body strings, and it looks like steel saddles on the bridge. So based on all that, what can we really tell what kind of telecaster it is? Because it's a bit vague. Um, well, funnily enough, like the, the, the little details, like the five screws in the single-ply black guard, actually pinpoint the guitar to a very specific era. And, and that era is pre the middle of 1959, after which um, the Telecaster sported a three-ply black-white blackguard with eight screws. So the skunk stripe um, is also pre-1959. What is the skunk stripe? It's, yeah, it's a good question, a valid question. Um, on a maple neck, um, it is a strip of darker wood, probably... On, on the back. On the back of the neck, yeah. So... Where the truss rod would go 
in the neck to keep the neck straight and true, um, they would route a channel in the back of the neck and then fill that channel in with a darker coloured wood. Yeah. Um, sort of glue it in on top of the truss rod. Um, so that it, it, it's, it's a decorative feature, but it also uh, covers up where the truss rod is on the neck. Mm. After 1959, the truss rod was inserted on the other side of the neck and covered up with the rosewood fretboard. Right. So the, the, the skunk stripe disappeared from yeah. Telecasters after 1959 I because get... of the manner of which the truss rod was inserted into the neck. Um, that changed. Um, the through body strings are pre-1958 because after 1958, the strings were strung through the bridge plate on the top of the body. What, in all Telecasters? Yep. All right. Yep, apparently so. Um, the circular string tree is pre-early 1956. So we're getting a bit further back here in the 50s, um, after which a butterfly or winged string tree was used. If you don't know what the string tree is, it's it's on the headstock and it just like creates a little halfway point for the top two strings to sort of anchor themselves to as it goes up to the tuning peg. It can make a break angle as well, can't it? To yeah. stop over the nut to the tuner being too straight. Yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. Rounded control knobs uh, were replaced by flat top control knobs also in 1956. So... You know, this guitar featuring rounded nickel control knobs puts it pre-1956. And the steel saddles replaced brass saddles in 1954. So, while we can't, you know, pinpoint the exact date, we can say with some certainty that this guitar, unless it's a very, very, very good uh, copy, like reissue, yeah. um, although the patina on it would suggest otherwise... Um, we can say with some degree of certainty that it's a mid-50s Fender Telecaster made between 1954 and 1956. Or it might be a couple of different ones put together, because I think Springsteen's that. Well, yeah, yeah, I think his is an Esquire um, neck and a Telecaster body or right, vice okay. versa. But All yeah, right. I mean, it could be, it could be. I mean, I mean that was part of the reason that... You know, Leo Fender mm, sort of bought on next. Yeah, did it that way, you know, because uh, they're easy to put together, uh, easy to assemble. So the the second um, Telecaster that Svensson can be seen playing, I, I, we can identify it because it's got a different sticker on it than Telecaster number one. Um, and at the Rock AM Nürburgring in Germany on June the 6th, 2003, it can be seen playing... Uh, Telecaster number two on Lead Me Into the Night, which I always think like is a really brave move at a festival, especially the Rock AM Ring. Right. Because, you know, basically it's a, it's a heavy metal festival and they're playing Lead Me Into the Night in front of a, a, a rock festival crowd, which I think takes some guts, to be honest. It does, but fair play to them. Yeah. Um, so this Telecaster, getting back to... Um, the task at hand. Mm. Uh, it looks very similar to Butterscotch Telly number one. There are a few minor differences. There's less fretboard wear, but again, uh, it has a five screw single ply black guard, a silver spaghetti logo with Telecaster uh, written underneath on the decal, circular string tree, six steel saddles, flat headed control knobs, and through body strings, and the skunk stripe up the back of the neck. Meaning? 
Well, it's kind of a tricky one, this. So on the face of it, um, Silver Spaghetti logo with Telecaster underneath was introduced in 1951. Single-ply black guard with five screws, as we've just mentioned, was pre-mid-1959. Through-body strings, pre-1958. Circular string tree, pre-1956. Flat control knobs introduced in 1956. So it should be another mid-50s Telecaster. Mm. But... The bridge piece is the, the the sticking point here. The bridge piece with six vintage-style steel saddles, try saying that fast, um, was not introduced until the early 70s on the Telecaster Custom. And also, as I mentioned, there's not as much fretboard wear as you would expect on a mid-50s maple board Telecaster, although it does have quite a few dings to the body. So... I would have to say it's either an exceptionally clean mid-50s Telecaster with a retrofitted vintage-style six-saddle bridge, or it's a pre-2003 vintage 52 reissue with a retrofitted vintage-style six-saddle bridge in place, because I couldn't find any pre-2003 vintage 52 reissue tellies that sported that specific bridge. Which do you think it is? Knowing that Peter Svensson has a penchant for <laughs> vintage instruments, I would say that it's probably a mid-50s Telecaster with right. with a retrofitted uh, bridge plate. Let's go for that then. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with that. I'm happy with that. He's got three different Gibson Les Pauls that he plays. So the first Les Paul that we'll talk about um, is pictured on a a photograph uh, that was taken during the Long Gone Before Daylight sessions. So I think we can pretty definitely say that this guitar was used on the sessions. Its main features are a gold top finish, path pickups, trapezoid mother of pearl crown neck inlays, Bell control knobs, Cluson nickel and ivory tulip tuning pegs, full tunematic bridge sets, single body binding, neck binding, black pick guard, rosewood board, and it doesn't appear to have Les Paul's signature on the headstock. So what is it then? So all all the features that I've just read out there uh, point to it being a Les Paul standard. Um, but what year is it? Well. Um, if you do a Google search for Les Paul standard gold top with a black guard, um, it's the 1957 model that appears uh, quite quite a lot. Now, the difference between the original 1957 models and the model that Svensson is playing on this particular photograph um, is the colour of the control knobs. So the originals had golden bell-style controls, uh, whereas Svensson's guitar has black bell-style controls. Begs the question, would you switch out the control knobs on a guitar of that vintage? Um, what if somebody had it years ago and it wasn't of that vintage and they switched them and they just thought, oh, I'll just change these? Yeah, I mean, it could happen, yeah. Because yeah. you always think yeah. it's sacrilege if you got it and you changed it now and yeah. you put some brand new ones from, you know, guitar shop on. But what if somebody changed them in 1962? Yeah, it doesn't have to be a, a modern yeah. modification, does it? Um I mean, Gibson Custom Shop 
have obviously made many 1957-spec gold-top guitars with numerous aesthetic variations, um, probably according to the client's wishes. Yeah. So maybe Svensson's guitar is just that. Maybe it is just like a custom shop order that he that he put in. Now, I thought I'd found the right guitar in the Gibson Custom Shop 1957 50th anniversary Les Paul standard, which has black bell-style controls, uh, until I did my maths um, and then realised that the 50th anniversary of 1957 is 2007. So there's no <laughs> way there's no way that he could have been playing yeah. that guitar in 2003. Um I also found a 2012 Gibson Historic Custom Shop R4 Les Paul Gold Top built in 1957 specs that had black top hat style controls. Um, but obviously it can't be that one because that's 2012. Um, then I also found a Gibson Custom Shop Les Paul Standard 1957 reissue R7 vintage original spec from 2010. It's a gold top with a dark back and it also has no Les Paul signature on the headstock but it had a mix of bell and top hat style controls. And it wasn't the Joe Bonamassa signature, which I can hear everybody... Um, I can't hear everybody saying it, but they'll all be going, it's the Joe Bonamassa signature, Les Paul, you fool. And it's not, it's a different, different guitar. And then finally, I also found a 60th anniversary Gibson Custom Shop 1957 Les Paul Gold Top, um, Vintage original spec with black plastics built for the Chicago Music Exchange, which, aside from having the Les Paul signature on the headstock, looked like an exact match. Now, having said that, none of these guitars, just from like a dating point of view, because all the guitars I've mentioned are post-2003, which kind of makes me think, is Svensson's actually in 1957? Um, that he's playing there um, I don't know is the answer I, I, I hate to disappoint without being able to offer a definitive answer but I genuinely don't know on mm. this one it could be a 57 it could be a custom shop I don't know it is a Les Paul though it's are a you Les confident Paul standard. of that I'm confident that it's a Les Paul standard yeah Right. Yeah. even okay. though it doesn't say Les Paul on the headstock um, I am confident that it's a Les Paul standard okay yeah. Les Paul number two, moving quickly on. You can see this in concert being played uh, on Live and Learn with a capo across from the A to the top E string at the ninth fret with a low E being left open. Oh, nice. Which, you know, is, is quite an interesting um, way of doing things. Features of this particular guitar... It's a flame burst finish, zebra pickups, trapezoid mother of pearl crown neck inlays, bell control knobs, close and nickel and ivory tuning pegs, full tunematic bridge set, single body binding, neck binding, ivory pick guard, rosewood board and tobacco stained pickup switch. So what kind of Les Paul is it then, based on that? Uh, well, it's definitely another Les Paul standard. Uh, but uh, the question is, can we identify what year it is? I don't know, Phil. Can you identify what year it is? Well, one of one of the giveaways could possibly be the Zebra Pickups. What does that mean? Um, well, Zebra Pickups, um, they obviously get their name from the combination of the black and cream plastic uh, that you can see on them. A humbucking pickup has two coils. Yep. And on Zebra Pickups, one of them is, is cased in black plastic and the other is cased in a cream plastic. Um, the origin of these pickups dates back to 1959 and 1960, um, where Gibson had a, a shortage of black plastic used in the production of their pickups. But as the pickups were covered by a nickel plate, this didn't affect the overall look of the guitar. So on 
uh, Les Paul standard on the path pickups, you will see that the pickups are actually like nickel plated, yep. like they've, they've got like a silverish sort of colour to them. Mm. Uh, underneath that plate is the is the plastic. Um, so if you take that metal plate off, you expose the the cream or black or black and cream plastic covers on the the pickup coils. So some guitarists um, started to take a look under the cover of their uh, path pickups to see whether they had standard black or zebra pickups. And believe it or not, some players were convinced that the zebra configuration actually made the guitar sound better. Soon after pickup manufacturers began making these pickups uh, to satisfy the demand for them. So it's basically snake oil um, that these pickup manufacturers are trading in. Because the plastic has no bearing whatsoever on the sound that the pickup generates. I'm sure some people think it does. I'm sure there are people out there that are utterly convinced of this. <laughs> I bet um, Joe Mon- Bonamassa can tell. <laughs> he, he could probably hear the difference from a mile yeah, away. Yeah, and the year uh, of the black plastic. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he could probably determine the, the depth and width and all the dimensions of the black plastic too. It makes a difference. It does, it does. Zebra pickups were short-lived. Um, because when the black plastic pickups ran out, Gibson started making all cream pickups. And when the supply of black plastic picked up again, the pickups returned to being all black. I'm with you. I get you, Phil. Okay, so the whole process took less than a year between 1958 and 59. Which means they're desirable because they're relatively rare. Yes, they are rare and they're of that vintage, you know, late 50s yeah. going into 1960. So that's the Zebra pickups. The next thing is the uh, the bell control knobs, which were originally used between 1955 and 1960. Uh, and with the Les Paul standard being introduced in 1958, these are the control knobs that appeared on the original batch of, according to VintageGuitar.com, 1,712 Les Paul standards produced between 1958 and 1960 when production ceased. Production of the Les Paul standard recommenced in 1976, but the second run of Les Paul standards featured either top hat or speed style control knobs instead. So the, the bell control knob dates the Les Paul to this very specific period in the late 50s. So they didn't make any Les Pauls in that shape between just Les Pauls in general? They, no, they made the custom. Yeah. They just didn't make the standard. Is this when they redesigned it and it looked like an SG and Les Paul hated it? That came in the early 60s, yeah. Right, just yeah. getting my timeline yeah. right of Gibson yeah. faux pas. Yeah, so <laughs> so the, the, the original Les Paul standard was produced between 58 and 60 and where production stopped and then it picked up again in 76. I get you. Okay. Um, this, is, this is important because the bell-style control knobs are the only control knobs that you'll find on the original run of Les Paul standards. Likewise, as mentioned a moment ago, the Zebra pickups aren't the only pickups found on Les Paul standards from the first two years of production, but they're a fairly anomalous feature that marks the guitar from that period out from the guitars Gibson built after 1959. So, 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 is Peter Svensson's Les Paul, which features both Zebra pickups and bell style control knobs an original Les Paul standard produced between 1958 and 1960. I would say you'd have to be a complete insaniac to take a guitar of that value and vintage on the road. Don't Kirk Hammett take a guitar of that value on the road? It does, it does. Imagine how much he's got that insured for. Well, exactly, yeah, and he probably can afford to carry it around 
in its own flight, you know, massively protected flight case and book a plane seat for it to sit on mm. so it doesn't have to go in the hold. I think he's rather cringingly said that it's never too far away from him. He, yeah. call, he calls it greeny. Yeah, well, and it makes my skin crawl a bit when he calls it greeny. Yeah, yeah. I, I get mean, it, you know, he feels very affectionate towards it and it has a lot of, you know, history to it, but... <sighs> yeah. I I kind of I kind of feel like although you know a fifties mid fifties Telecaster or two it's probably well within his his grasp, but a vintage original fifty nine burst, in especially in the condition that the guitar is on the video you can see it's in great condition. I, I'd have to say that a could you afford it and b would you take it on tour and I I just can't see it. I but just, this is twenty years ago. Yeah, but I mean, even back then, you know, they were going for decent sums of money. So it would have been 40, 40 odd, 44 years old, 42, 43, 44 years old at that time. Yeah. But it's not just the age, it's the rarity of them. Yeah, you know, yeah, I get yeah. 1,712 Les Paul standards produced in two years. It's not a lot, really. No. So, I mean, the question is, you know, what what is this Les Paul that we're talking about? Um, if I had to guess, I'd say... It's a Gibson Custom Shop 59 reissue uh, from some point before 2003. I just don't see it. I don't see it. I, I just yeah. don't think you take a guitar, an original 59 burst on tour, I just don't see it. So, the third Gibson Les Paul, um, which is playing on communication uh, uh, again at the Rock AM Ring on June 6th, 2003, during which he executes a seamless move where he moves the capo from the second to the fourth fret for the key change at the end of the song does it just does it seamlessly like i love that key change as well yeah it's like one of them where you're like where did that come from yeah it's it's brilliant the way that he does it it's, it's that as well but when, i just think when you move a capo along it, you might not have it in tune properly you yeah take a bit of tweaking don't they sometimes they do but if you can do it then yeah fair enough absolutely um so this guitar is is, is fairly similar to the previous Les Paul that we've just talked about. Uh, it's got sunburst finish, um, not flame burst, unlike the uh, the previous one. Uh, it's got a Bigsby tremolo system. I love a Bigsby. Do you? Yeah, I mean, I'm I know, not so sure about a Bigsby, but I'll... I don't I, know. I know from a tuning point of view, they're not the most stable right. guitars, uh, or, or stable of tremolo systems. Um but I do. I love the way they look. I think they're great. I think they make any guitar look instantly better. Even a Telecaster. Yeah, even a Telecaster, especially a Telecaster. Yeah. Yeah. It also sports this. Les Paul also sports Cluson nickel and ivory tulip pegs, trapezoidal mother of pearl crown neck inlays. Again, single body binding, neck binding, ivory pick guard, ivory pickup mounts, path pickups. Uh, these ones are covered uh, with the the nickel nickel cover. Um, bell control knobs and all in all just again looks like a Les Paul standard mm. I'm sorry I'm just on uh, an American guitar website Emerald City Guitars oh yeah 1952 Gibson Les Paul Gold Top how much do you reckon 75 grand 40,000 dollars I 40, thought it'd be more yeah, anyway yeah. sorry I've derailed that but right. I think it's intriguing how somebody decides on these prices sometimes yeah Anyway, I do yeah. love a Gibson Les Paul Junior though. Twenty five grand for a nineteen sixty one. Yeah. T V yellow. When you think about it though, when you think about the materials that it <laughs> took to make that guitar and then <laughs> accumulative worth. Yeah. You know, it's not twenty five grand's worth of materials, is it? Um anyway. 
I mean, I know that's not the point of vintage guitars, but from an objective point of view. So, you know, uh, what kind of guitar is it? Well, everything I've just said, really. <laughs> uh, the bell control style knobs uh, mark this guitar out. For me, as a 59 reissue, uh, even fewer Les Paul standards were fitted with a Bigsby tremolo system uh, in the late 50s. So it's highly unlikely that this is an original and it's more than likely a Gibson custom shop uh, guitar. I, again, you know, if it's even rarer still because it's got a Bigsby tremolo, would you take it on tour? I don't think you would. If you if you wanted to, if you were confident that, you know, you've got a guitar tech who can look after it and wrap it in cotton wool, keep it... It's the baggage handlers at the airport you need to worry about, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. of I mean, course, Kirk Hammett, they've got their own private jet, haven't they? Yeah. I don't imagine the Cardigans had a private jet in 2003. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, anything like that says fragile on it in an airport for a baggage handler People's is just... eyes light up. <laughs> fair, fair game. I wonder it? what this is. Um, in an effort to find out what it is, they throw it across the... <laughs> Across the runway mm. and listen to the sound it makes when it lands. So, um, I've just realised I've made a bit of a mistake there, Julian. At least you're admitting to it. Shows you shows what kind of man you are, Phil. I like I like to take responsibility for myself. Good, good. Um, we've been talking quite brazenly about a fifty-seven Les Paul standard in the first section and then in this section I've just caught myself saying that standards were made until 58 how can people trust anything we've said at any point in any of these now I feel like I've lost the audience you have go on you can claw them back though with a heartfelt apology (laughs) come back Um, so yeah it must be um a 57 standard conversion. I did think that, but, you know, I didn't want to say at the time. Yeah. So, sorry for not speaking up. Yeah, don't be afraid <laughs> to speak up. If I'm talking shit, please tell me. Uh, the next guitar we're going to talk about um, is an acoustic guitar. Um, it's a Martin acoustic guitar, um, and it can be seen being played with, at again, at the Taubertel Festival in Germany, on the 10th of August 2003 and he's playing it on the song For What It's Worth. So the features of this guitar are uh, double body binding, which means binding on the top and bottom edge of the guitar. It's got binding up the middle of the back of the body, abalone decoration around the top binding. What does that mean, abalone? Uh, It's like a silvery mother of pearly type thing. Uh, It's a decorative sort of feature, I guess. Um, and it's also got uh, Avalon decoration on the headstock and around the sound hole. It's got a tortoise shell pick guard, which I always think look great on acoustic guitars. Mm. Um, it's, if I had to choose, a, you know, if I was having a guitar made, a tortoise shell pick guard would be the way forward for me, I think. It's got snowflake inlays, a spruce top, and a large CF Martin inlay on the headstock and gold tuning pegs. So the question is. Um, Julian, what's the question? So what kind of Martin is it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, It's a Martin D45 in short, uh, which is Martin's flagship dreadnought guitar. 
and it's owned and played by other such luminaries such as David Crosby, Neil Young and Stephen Stills of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young fame. Do you think they got an endorsement? They might have done, they might have done, but if three quarters of the band are playing the same model guitar, it's got to be... What did the other one play? Pretty good. I don't know that Graham Nash actually played guitar with Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. I think he just sort of stood there and sang. Right. (laughs) <laughs> and left it to the others. That's still quite an important task, though. It is, yeah, it is. Especially when you... It's not you know, like being stood there playing the triangle, is it? No, so it I is. mean, but, it, but to be fair to the others, you know, his hands were free. He could have at least picked up a tambourine could or have a triangle a or something, yeah. Lazy. Lazy cat. So what year is the question? Um, I'm not entirely sure what year this Martin Acoustic is. I found a 2001 D45V, which is a vintage series dreadnought, uh, that looks very, very similar and, and has more or less the same spec, but there's one key difference uh, relating to the fretboard inlays. Um, the standard D45 had hexagon inlays, which were re- replaced by the snowflake inlays when Martin produced the D45V, which Svensson's guitar has, which would indicate that it is indeed a D45V, but... The 2001 model has Christian F. Martin's signature inlaid at the 19th fret. Oh, I'm never a fan of that. No. Are you? Not really, Like no. things on, just things which stick out on. Like there's yeah. a Sting Telecaster bass, you know, uses that iconic yeah. bit. But it says it's got like on 12th fret, it's got, I don't know if it's, it's, I think it's dot inlays and then on the 12th fret it's like a block and I think it might even just say Sting on it or something. Uh, it's like, oh God, no. yeah. Yeah, it's not for me. It's not for me. So the difference between the 2001 model that I just mentioned that has Christian F. Martin's signature inlaid uh, the 19th fret and Svensson's guitar is that Svensson's guitar doesn't have the signature inlaid. Thankfully, on the MTV Live In Your Home footage, there is quite an extreme close-up of Svensson's um, strumming hand on his acoustic, right, where you can see the end of the fretboard and the signature just isn't there. Now, I have read that the signature inlay only appeared on a limited run of 75 Martin D45Vs produced in 2003. So maybe 2001 is incorrect, I don't know. Um, however, the D45V entered production in 1997 and early examples that I found didn't have the inlaid signature. So... I would chance my arm that this D45 or D45V is a late 90s model. That's what I'm going with, whether you like it or not. I'm all right with that. Good, 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 good. So the next guitar is another Gibson. Um, It's a Firebird. Right. And it can be seen, Svensson can be seen playing it on Live and Learn at the Groner Lund Festival in Stockholm in 2003. But the... The footage looks very much like they're miming. It looks like a TV appearance. Oh, I think I've seen that. Yeah. Um, so maybe he's got it for the aesthetic. Well, that's kind of what I'm thinking. You know, maybe he's not. Maybe the guitar wasn't played in the studio, but it's just being used for this TV appearance because it looks good. Is it not in that documentary for Long On? The one after it, sorry, not this one. No, Super Extra Gravity. Yeah. I'm sure he, when he's talking through his gear for that album, he's. He pulls that one out. So maybe it is a studio guitar and it just made an appearance on that. Yeah, maybe. Live performance. You know, it's, it's <clears> main <throat> features. It's got two, two P90 pickups uh, with black plastic covers. It's got a white pit guard, sideways vibrola. 
Uh, rosewood fretboard, four black top hat control knobs, a three-way switch on the bottom curve, Firebird graphic on the top curve. Um, I say curve, I mean, you know, on the body. Mm. I'm sure that makes it clearer in everybody's minds. Um, Gibson logo near the truss rod cover and dot inlays. So basically, um, you know, in, in a nutshell, it's a non-reverse Gibson Firebird warning card in all red, which at the time was a custom colour. Right. The non-reverse launched in 1965 and was cheaper but better equipped than the reverse Firebird 1 guitars. Um, it's got a set or glued neck instead of a through neck. It's got two P90 pickups instead of the one P90 found on the reverse Firebird. Um, production lasted for just two years until 1967 when, due to poor sales, it was dropped. Um, now, is Peter Svensson's guitar a vintage mid-60s Firebird 1? I don't know. Um, but... What I do know is that uh, Gibson Custom, Custom Shop have produced a non-reverse Cardinal Red Firebird 1 to authentic 1960 specs, but every example I've found um, has humbucking pickups instead of P90s, um, except one which had been modified by the owner, probably to reflect the original mm. uh, 60s spec. Maybe you he's know, got one of the originals? Maybe he has. I mean, it'd probably be more affordable than a mm. 59 less poor standard. <laughs> probably. You know, one thing, one thing that you know that we've just touched upon. It was used for a TV show. They were miming. You know, he's got no capo on the guitar, which he had a capo on the Les Paul when he played Live and Learn at, uh, on the festival circuit, as we mentioned earlier. And also Lars Olaf Johansson is also playing the Gibson Firebird in the background, um, where you would expect him to maybe play an acoustic guitar mm. or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, I can't. I don't know. I don't know what to make of this particular guitar. Whether or not it was used in the studio, or whether it was just being used for aesthetic purposes on this TV show, I don't know. Mm. And you'll be glad to hear, Julian, um, that we are down to the last guitar to talk about. It feels like we've been in a guitar rabbit hole for some time <laughs> now. Um, so there's a photo taken during the long gone before daylight sessions. It's one of the few photographs. It's one of two that I found that actually feature Svensson holding a guitar. Maybe three, actually. There's one photo of him with the Les Paul, the gold top, and then there's one of him with the Martin D45. Uh, and then there's a photo of him with this guitar, um, the Gibson Flying V. Now, from the photo, you can see that it's um, a Carina Flying V, the reason it's called Carina uh, is that it's named after the distinctive-looking wood that was used in its construction, which is actually wood from the limber tree. Which... Is that like the orangey sort of pale colour wood? Um, I would say it's more of a natural, a light sort of natural colour, not dissimilar right. to the door just behind you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you can all see that, those yeah. of you listening. yeah. So it's, it's actually wood from the limber tree, which Gibson uh, trademarked as Carina. That's um, a bit naughty, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, can you copyright a tree? Yeah, can, no, well, that's that's what I mean. Can you copyright a tree? It's... I mean, Gibson have been known for some of their um, less than ethical practices in the past. And recently. And Maybe recently, yeah. That Mark Agnesa video. I've not seen it. Oh, that. it's amazing. You need to watch. I think he's called Mark Agnesa, isn't it? He's getting on his high horse about, I don't know, them being used in films and them not being given credit for it. And it's a very strange video. You should right. watch it. I will. I'll check it out. 
The main features of this uh, Carina Flying V, um, it's got black pit guard, three inline controls, black bell style, uh, nicotine stain toggle switch, through body stringing with a tunematic bridge. It's got uh, ivory tulip style Cluson tuning pegs, gold Gibson logo on the headstock, path pickups, white dot inlays on the neck and a rosewood fretboard. So we discussed the Flying V a little bit in the Master of Puppets episode, um, so I'm not going to go into too much historical detail here. Suffice to say uh, that the Karina Flying V was introduced in 1958 and production stopped in 1959 with... <laughs> that sounds like... Yeah, nobody bought it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, by some estimates, just 98 guitars were built in that time. Um, now, this makes the original Karina Vs super rare. Don't you think it's weird, though, a weird design for the 1958? It's very forward-thinking. Well, it's just odd. Just imagine them coming, I've got this idea, yeah. and, like, pouring it and saying, look, people be... Yeah. Do you remember the name really? of the guy that designed it? Oh, Man Alive... Um, Mr. Loverman Go on Seth Lover Seth Loverman yeah. <laughs> Yes <laughs> Seth Lover So not only are these original V's super rare They're also massively oh. expensive And horrible Yeah well yeah, It's a matter of taste I, I mean I like them But I'd look ridiculous playing them <laughs> You'd look awesome playing one of them actually <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it back I love them Get one You should get one So it kind of makes me think the, the one Svensson is pictured with is definitely a re- reissue of some kind. Especially, you know, if you've got, like... You can't afford... Surely you can't afford two 59... Original 59 Les Paul standards and an original late 50s Karina V. Surely not. I mean... Why not? Because they're bloody massively expensive, aren't they? I don't know. I mean... I don't know. At the time. He might not have had kids. Exactly, that's what I'm about. thinking. If you're on tour, you're you sing, know. yeah. He, he might not have had any overheads. He might have just slept at Tambourine Studios. Sorry, we're just speculating on his financial situation <laughs> at that time. It seems quite rude when you think about it, doesn't it? Does but, a bit. Does um, a bit. Yeah, I don't know, but it's, yeah, the likelihood of having, how many, nine, one of 98? Yeah. Yeah, maybe he did. Maybe. Um the question is, how do we know what year uh, his Flying V was produced? Um, now, the logo might give us some clue. Some Karina Vs had silver logos, but, as mentioned, Svensson's V had a gold logo. Which means... You don't know, do you? Which means... That... I'll tell you. I'll tell you what it means. A custom shop in a roundabout way. Um, <laughs> in the early eighties, Gibson produced what they called a heritage Carina Flying V, right? Which had a gold logo, and I found examples of a Gibson custom shop Carina V from ninety two and ninety nine that also had a gold logo on the headstock. Now, just as a side note, these early eighties Gibson heritage Carina Flying Vs were actually Honduran mahogany. Oh, so. Uh, Controversial. Another another unethical uh, marketing move by Gibson there. So I've also found two examples of a Gibson Custom Shop Carina V from 98 with a silver logo and a 2000 model with a silver logo. And then I found a 2001 and a 2002 with a gold logo. So it feels like Gibson are just basically making it up as they go along. Mm. Um, you know, we'll slap a silver one on this one and gold one on that one and, you know... I've done with it. Maybe just use what they had. 
Maybe, maybe that is it. Yeah, maybe. Um, what what does any of this tell us? Um, it tells us that if the Karina V that Svensson is holding was a new guitar at the time, it was probably made in 99, 2001 or 2002. But as a final caveat, I have seen original 58 Karina Vs online that have both silver and gold logos. Not at the same time, on different guitars, obviously. So who knows? Who knows indeed. Who knows? He's got good tasting guitars, though. I'll give him that. Oh, he's got stupendously good tasting guitars. Of all the guitars that I would covet, <laughs> like a mid fifties Tele or any fifties butterscotch Tele, and a Les Paul Standard, be it you know a gold top or a, a burst or whatever. Yeah. These and Firebird. Firebirds have got like stupidly long necks, which feel feel to me of a person of my stature like a bass guitar. And they're quite... What, like, scales longer on them? It feels or is it just like a, it to me. Oh, right. In, the, in the same way as... I always feel like when you play uh, an SG, the neck feels like it's in a weird position. Yeah. You know, like yeah. It's, does it start too... Is it too far that way or too far this way? I don't know, but it feels very yeah. different to other guitars as an SG to me. Yeah. I mean, a Firebird and a Flying V, I look ridiculous with both those guitars, but the other... The Tellys <coughs> and the Les Pauls, I'd, I'd be all over them. Yeah. Um, not so much the Martin acoustic. It's too um, ostentatious looking for my tastes. Oh. You know, with you're the, a bit more refined and a bit classier. I'm a bit more basic, a bit yeah. more agricultural. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, exceptional tasting guitars. Um, also, I think there's a baritone guitar on this somewhere, don't you? Well. Or a Fender Six. Possibly. On oh, the solo to You're the Storm. I'll come to it later on. Yeah. Yeah. In You're the Storm, because it's just, I think it's like, um, because it's so low and just the twang it's got, it reminds me of the Twin Peaks guitar. Yeah. You know, the intro to that. And I'm pretty sure that's a baritone guitar, loads of reverb, yeah. palm muting, whatever effect, other effect is on it. Um, but who knows? There's no mention of it anywhere. No. It's, there's no picture of it, is there, on that studio um, kind of log with the pictures and what they're talking about. Imagine um, they don't mention gear anyway, do they? But, um, yeah, there's no mention of it anywhere. I don't know how else they would have done it unless they just tuned the guitar down. Because well, I think it's like a it's like a C sharp, I think, the lowest note on it, which is way lower than... Yeah. What, what I would say is this, is that in, in live performance... Um, I'm pretty sure he's using some kind of octave effect. Yeah. Because he, he plays it on the Telecaster. I can't imagine him cutting corners, though, and doing that, looking at how much yeah. time they spent in the studio on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he probably spent a month playing it with an octave pedal and then thought, we need to do this again with a baritone. Yeah. Just a couple of blokes You've reached the end of side one. Well done. Save the rest of the programme. Please fast forward and turn over the cassette. Thank you for listening to the Rock Geeks podcast. If you have any comments, corrections and or constructive criticism, you can contact us at therockgeeks at gmail.com. 
If you have anything unnecessarily rude to say, please put it in your own trash folder and delete it to save us the bother. While we do read every email we receive, we cannot unfortunately guarantee a reply. The Rock Geeks is researched, written and presented by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Jingles composed and recorded by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Editing by Phil Greenwood. If you have enjoyed the Rock Geeks podcast, please consider joining us at Patreon, where in exchange for your generosity you will receive ad-free episodes, bonus content and early access. Or alternatively, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review and tell your friends about us.